Good morning, everybody, and we are live once again with the day three of the General Assembly sessions that will take place today here at the 2016 World Blind Union at the Rosen Center Hotel in Orlando, Florida. They're going to get going here in just a minute or so. They already gave the two-minute warning. Alongside me is uh, Brian Charlson. Yes, I. there we go. You know, if you switch the right buttons on, Larry, things happen. Exactly. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> but I'm doing a demo of what we're doing here in terms of Internet radio broadcast just moments before you switch that mic on. So I wanted to switch mine off, keep it from being transmitted. It is going to be a good morning this morning. Did You you had to take your guide dog out this morning, right, Larry? Of course. How's the weather out there? Typical Florida, just humid and um, plenty warm. There we go. Well, it was about not quite 80 degrees this morning when uh, we went outside with the dog first time. That was about, oh, seven, 7.50 or so this morning. And before we went down, we watched the morning news broadcast where the weather broadcaster said, it's drier right now, and that's why it's so hot. And I'm saying to myself, drier? Wait a minute, wait a minute. It's Florida humid out there. Definitely Florida humid. And I'm sure a number of our listeners live in that kind of zone. I was born oh, and raised in a temperate zone. So for me, uh, anything over 80, anything with this level of humidity, what would you say today? <laughs> do, you, do you have an idea of when you hear um, what the dew point is? Is that the term they use? Dew yeah, point? dew point. It's usually what? in the 70s in the, down here in the summertime. And, oh, that's just more than I can stand. More than I can stand. Sometimes it'll peak over 80. Uh Especially after a thunderstorm, it just <laughs> gets even worse. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And apparently thunderstorms or or rainstorms happen here in the afternoon. Yes. Right? The yes. temperature Most of the time is built in the up. Yep. Unless a tropical storm comes nearby, then that kind of really enhances <laughs> rain a lot. Nope. And here we go here with we go. our morning session. Gentlemen, <laughs> this is... Plenary session number nine, and the very tiny person that lives in my iPhone has just informed me that it's nine o'clock, which is the time for us to begin. We have before us this morning an extremely critical issue, that of budgeting, funding, and the future sustainability of the World Blind Union. And we have a distinguished panel of speakers who are going to address these issues. And our first step is to consider the budget for the forthcoming quadrennium. And the person to do that is an individual whom we have all met, an individual for whom we have a great deal of respect, has been our treasurer at WBU for the past eight years, Mr. A.K. Mittal. A.K. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Chairman, sir. Friends, I come to place before you, the delegates to the General Assembly, for your consideration and approval, budget proposals for the period 2017 to 2020. 
but uh, before we come to the actual budget figures for the quadrennium, I shall present before you some comments and notes which are intended to explain assumptions made within the preparation of the proposed budget for the period in reference, that is 2017-2020. I'm afraid my task is a little challenging because uh, I have to be dealing with figures and numbers which by their very nature would tend to be rather drab and dreary. Please bear with me for a while. Now, we have 15 comments here which I shall place before you right away. One, the budget document which has already been circulated includes our actual results for 2015, the annual approved budget for 2016, and the pro forma budgets proposed for each of the four years of the next quadrennial. Second, the proposed budget does not include any significant increases or decreases in revenues or expenses, but rather reflects a continuation of our present activities. Third, we have reflected a cost of living increase to both membership fee revenues as well as most of our expenditures. The increase is calculated at approximately 2.5% per year, which is the average rate of inflation in Canada where the WBU office is located. Number four, the budget has been carefully developed to ensure that we maintain a minimum of $100,000 in unrestricted net assets in order to ensure our financial solvency. This $100,000 as the minimum threshold in unrestricted net assets was agreed to at the 7th General Assembly in 2008. Most years reflect a modest surplus which helps to build our own unrestricted reserves to a more secure level. However, after the end of FOSI-funded Marrakesh project, we do incur modest deficits in 2018 and 2019. Over the course of the four-year period, however, we do anticipate an increase in our unrestricted funds, balance, unrestricted funds balance from $217,429 at the end of 2015 to $282,129 at the end of 2020. Five, our revenues assume that members will pay their membership fees on an annual basis, that we continue to receive sponsorship from our key supporting members, and that we generate funds through external sources. As pointed out a little earlier, we have reflected a modest 2.5% per year increase in membership fees. We will also be reviewing the fee category status of our national members as a result of examining the four international social and economic indices which are used to categorize the income levels of our members. 
It is expected that uh, any adjustments required will be implemented gradually over the quadrennium in order not to cause much difficulties to the affected members. Six, in the calculation of the membership fees that are presented in this budget, we will have already deducted $40,000 per year to put aside for the 2020 General Assembly. As has been explained elsewhere, these funds are placed into a General Assembly deferred revenue account and are then recognized as revenues during the year of the General Assembly. In the budget document that you have, you will see both the revenues and expenditures for the General Assembly re reflected in 2016 and then in 2020. Seven, we have, we have included approved project funds in both our revenues and expenditures. The two current projects are the Marrakesh project that is funded by the Open Society Institute Foundation for a total of $300,000, $300, I beg your pardon, total of $300,000 over 2016 and 2017 and $75,000 from CBM to support our human rights and advocacy efforts. Any other projects that might be undertaken during the quadrennial are expected to reflect full cost recovery as well as a small contribution towards our administrative costs. Eight, membership fee revenues reflect our experience during this past quadrennial. Most members are submitting their fees at the new fee level unless fee relief has been requested and agreed to. However, we still do have members who have not submitted fees at all during this past quadrennial period, and some have not paid even for the prior quadrennial. We have been incurring an expenditure of uh, over 20,000 each year to write off these unpaid fees, which we have to recognize as receivables until they are paid or written off if we feel there is no chance of collection. We have reflected a continuation of these written down expenditures in the contingency column of our expenses, but have reduced the amount each year, hoping that these non-paying members will begin to meet their financial obligations to the WBU. And I think we'll talk about membership fees issues a little later in the session with the permission of the chair. Nine, expenditures assume officers and, and, and executive meetings occurring at the same frequency as during this past quadrennium. Ten, funds have been allocated to support the work of project or working group expenses. Uh, no specific committee or working groups uh, have been identified. Rather, these will be determined by the officers following the development of the strategic plan and the groups needed to carry out the strategies and uh, initiatives identified within the plan. Eleven, office expenses reflect a modest year-over-year -year increase with our present staffing complement of three staff, that is CEO, communications officer, 
and administrative assistant. It should be noted that the WBU office now incorporates all financial management as well as administrative and communications functions of the WBU, including maintenance of the membership list, translations, website, production and distribution of materials on behalf of the membership. Twelve, it is recognized that we are still heavily reliant on our members for the payment of fees, and in the case of a few members, for additional sponsorship of our time, of our work. And while it had been our hope that the dependency on certain members for sponsorship would have been eliminated by now, this has unfortunately not been the case, as we have been unable to generate sufficient external revenues to replace these sponsorship funds. While we have been successful with obtaining some project funds, most project funders will not fund administration expenses or will only fund at less than 10%. So this is not a very viable source of revenue for us. We will therefore need to request our current sponsors to continue their support in order to ensure the sustainability of our operations. And we will request other members who have the capability and who are not currently sponsors to consider providing sponsorship support. And this matter also, I understand, will be deliberated upon a little later. Thirteen, this budget does not reflect any potential impact of assuming the assets and obligations of the World Braille Foundation when these are actually transferred over to the WBU. Because these assets will be held in designated deferred revenue funds and any WBF scholarship expenditures will be paid from these same designated deferred revenue funds, we do not anticipate any significant impact to WBU's financial position. Fourteen, all revenue and expenditure assumptions are based on there being no significant variation between the Canadian and U.S. dollars. And finally, 15, it is understood that this proposed budget reflects the assumptions indicated above based on our best ability to project revenues and expenditures at this time. It is also a balance of utilizing the revenues that we can generate from membership fees, member sponsorships, and fundraising efforts to provide the best service possible to our members and for the benefit of blind and partially sighted persons throughout the world whom we represent. It will also be critically important to monitor the budget and these assumptions rigorously throughout the term in order to make adjustments as circumstances require. This quadrennial budget will form the basis of annual detailed budgets for approval by the officers, which will more closely reflect the revenue opportunities and expenditure expectations during those specific time frames. Ladies and gentlemen, these are some of the comments. I will not go through the entire four-year budget plan item by item, but just 
indicate a few highlights with the permission of the chair. In presenting the quadrennial budget proposals for your approval, we come to the actual budget performer for 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20, and we have annual budget expenditure for 2015. What I'm trying to say is that this income that we're talking about will indicate 2015 actual income, 2016 approved budget, 2017-18-19-20 is the anticipated income. I will quickly read through the income part of it. Membership dues, 2015, 2000, 2015 is 246,649, and these are all US dollar currency. 2016, 250,000. 2017, 261,000. 2018, 267,000. 2019, 273,000. 2020, 280,000. Donations and fund development, 2015, 11,708. You will find this specifically precise because this has been the actual position 2015. 2016, 60,000. 2017, 25,000. 2018, 30,000. 2019, 35,000. 2020, 40,000. Core sponsorships, 2015, 150,000. 2016, 145,000. 2017, 2018, 2019, and 2020, it is 150,000 for each of these four years. Interest and miscellaneous income, it is very little, 2016, 2017, 18, 19, 20, it is 6,000. And project income, 2015, 208,583. 2016 is 22, 224,000. 2017 is 225,000. 2018, you will notice because the Marrakesh project would have been over. 2018, we have 2019 and 2020, we have an identical figure of 75,000 for each of these three years. General revenue allocated, GA revenue, General Assembly revenue, 2015, it was $8,997. 2016, this year, General Assembly allocation is 187000 And then for the next General Assembly, 2020, it is 160000 So this is what the position is as regards the income part of this uh, budget is concerned. If we come to the expenditure part, item-wise actual expenditure for 2015 and anticipated ex expenditure for 2016 to 2020, this has already been indicated in, in full in the document already circulated, and so I shall not trouble you by reading out these details here. I shall just read out the year-wise totals of expenditure. Total expenditures, 2015, 597,288. 2016, 823,700. 2017, 
626,500. 2018, 565,550. 2019, 544,400. 2020, 692,200. I know these are all figures and numbers. I have just a few more figures to read out. Now, income less expenditures. 2015, we had income uh, position about uh, income exceeding expenditure by 28,649. 2016, we had income exceeding expenditure, we expect 48,300. 2017, again, income excess 40,500. But 2018, expenditure over income might be 37,500. 2019, expenditure over income might be 5,400. And finally, 2020, we, will, we expect to have income over expenses, 18,800. And now I come to the final part of my presentation, which is our unrestricted net assets ending 2015. As we have said already, 2015, it was 217,429. 2016, we expect it to be 265,729. 2017, 306,229. 2018, 268,729. 2019, 263,329. 2020, 288,129. Two more things, ladies and gentlemen, with the permission of the chair. These notes and budget plan for the quadrennium were placed before our, before our exco at their meeting held here on 17th August. After careful consideration, the exco has recommended these notes and proposals for uh, budget proposals for approval by the General Assembly. Before I conclude, Chairman Sir, permit me to express my sincere gratitude to Penny, who has taken the trouble of putting together the notes and figures I have just read out to you. Thank you. Thank you very much, AK. While it is not necessary for us here to do a line-by-line -line analysis of that budget, as you heard, it's, that has been considered carefully by the Executive Committee. But what is required uh, is for this General Assembly to provide approval for the pro forma budget. Therefore, I will entertain a motion to approve the budget for the next quadrennium as presented. Moved, thank you. Second. Those in favor of the motion to accept the budget, please signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstentions, if any? The motion is approved. Thank you. And may I also add thanks on behalf of all of us for the meticulous care with which these figures are arrived at and for the stewardship exercised by our secretariat over the money that we have. Now, just before we proceed, I've been asked to make an announcement at the English language session last night on the Marrakesh Treaty, somebody left their cane behind in that room. If that's you, you've probably realized it by now. 
and you can retrieve it at the help desk uh, outside here and to your left uh, where you registered uh, before. So that's the white cane that was left at the Marrakesh uh, presentation last night. We now move to uh, a slightly different consideration of financial issues. The question of the future sustainability of the World Blind Union. And we have a group of speakers, uh, all of whom you have met thus far in the General Assembly, uh, who are going to address that issue from a variety of perspectives. And to begin the process of that, I would call upon Mr. Arndt Horta, the President of the World Blind Union. Arndt, the floor is yours. Thank you. <laughs> it seems to, to me that I have left my cane yesterday, so... <laughs> thank you, Charles, and um, thank you, AK. Uh, you are the, you are the uh, person, AK, I, I know, that can present also figures uh, that makes it interesting for us all, and in a very clear and... Uh, uh, proper way so we can uh, discuss also the figures. So thank you so much. Um, I'm going to talk a little about fundraising and uh, sustainability. Um, first of all, I will say that I've been in uh, the fundraising area for many, many years. And uh, I know that some people think or means that fundraising is uh, difficult and something you should not talk about, but I love fundraising. So, so I'm standing here today to say something about the future because fundraising is about future. First of all, sustainable. That is a very much used uh, word, especially for us working with developing countries because sustainability is a goal for all kind of development. We also have heard about the Sustainable um, Development Goals, which will be uh, important in the future for all uh, countries. But sustainability is a kind of a guarantee for the future. So when we look into our figures, our account, we can see that we need to have such a guarantee because we also need to plan for the future. So sustainability is a way to plan for the future. But it is not only a guarantee for the work and, and, and the way we are doing the work today. It's also about to develop our work and also to extend our work. So when we are talking about fundraising, talking about sustainability, it's not because we, we, we are going to guarantee an office, uh, some staff members and so on. It is about utilizing our funds. It's about extending our work. It is about thinking of blind and partially sighted all over the world. I will. Uh, I could have said that uh, since I'm now uh, going to be the immediate past president, I, 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 I could have said that I'm not caring about the future, but I will always care for the future. Because there is no reason to not care about the future. 
and also to, uh, to, to extend uh, Wörblan Union's work, it's, it's very important. I really believe in Wörblan Union. I, I, I really think that it is important, not only for us sitting in this meeting hall, but also for all individuals around the world. So when we are talking about how can we uh, develop our work, how can we get more funds to our work? It is about the individuals around the world and how we can also secure their, uh, their future in, uh, in our work. Well, I, I think it's important to say this because uh, uh, when we talk about fundraising and how, uh, how to mobilize funds, it's, it's often getting into techniques. But for me, it is more about philosophy and also how to, to, to make the future better for all people. I am going to talk about core sponsoring. Now that might be the most difficult to do because um, to, to, uh, to raise funds for concrete projects is uh, easier, but to, to raise funds for the for, for, for our work, for our office, for our, uh, all our costs, uh, which is not uh, necessarily linked to the project, that is more difficult. Uh, but core sponsoring is about taking care of the base in, uh, in our work. Uh, we need uh, that kind of funding to do advocacy. We need that kind of funding to doing capacity building. So core sponsoring is the beginning and it is the end of our work. I have heard that some people are saying that we would like to give funds to the World Brand Union, but we just want to have concrete uh, projects and we just want to do it in our region. I think we need a kind of awareness and building awareness that's saying that core sponsoring, we must have that in place before we are having a concrete projects. So that, that is very important for me to say, and uh, I think we need to, to talk about that and how we can do that in the future. Well, in the beginning of the term, I thought mobile re uh, resource, uh, to mobilize resources was very important, and I would like to start a kind of a work to get more funds to the World Bank Union. And we even had a workshop in London in February uh, 2012, I think it was, and we talked about fundraising. Um, we also tried to, uh, to recruit organizations, members, to start fundraising for World Bank Union in their own country. And the theory is that if you can attract uh, new donors to be also uh, donating money for international work, they, they, the donors will also support the national work. We made a kind of uh, research and we also uh, did a, a good uh, uh, try in, in Norway. And we got money to World Bank Union, and those donors have been very loyal to the national organization since then. So I will also still try to 
to motivate our members, our uh, our um, active members in fundraising, also to try to see if there is a kind of a mutual interest in uh, uh, mobilizing funds for World Bank Union, that can also be a benefit for the national organization. That was the theory, and we have seen that functioning in uh, in, uh, Norway. So I I think we should go down that uh, lane again and and see if there are some who wants to try that again. To, um, to, to, To do fundraising for an international umbrella organization is very difficult. Uh, even to do fundraising for our national organizations are difficult, but, but to do it for an international umbrella organization, that is very uh, difficult, because where are we going to do fundraising for an international umbrella organization? We need to do it in, uh, in, in our uh, member countries, uh, because there are not the people are living there, not in a global uh, connection. It's it's about uh, doing the fundraising in uh, special co- uh, the countries, and we need to do that. We have also tried some other uh, experiments, but it has not been very effective. It uh, it has been very difficult to do this. So we need to talk about and find ways to to raise funds for uh, for the core uh, sponsoring of World Bank Union. <clears throat> so I'm also going to talk a little about the other uh, the other side of fundraising because people are thinking that fundraising is just to raise funds, but fundraising is also about utilizing funds. It's about utilizing funds in the most effective way. And um, I'm usually saying that one dollar saved is the one dollar earned and uh, raised. So if we can save money and use the funds in a more effective way, that is also a part of fundraising. So I would really like also to focus on the way we are using our funds. This General Assembly, for example, is a big cost maybe the biggest cost in, in, our, in our work, in our programs. And we also have to think, is this the right way to use the funds? And um, of course, when we are also trying to uh, train people during this General Assembly and give opportunities, it is also expected that we, we do it in, in a way that also people get something back. We also having uh, sessions in the evening and uh, I saw yesterday that one, uh, one workshop was not visited at all. And then we have to, in a, in a fundraising connection, see if we are using the money in the right way. So we need also to be very, um, very uh, concentrated, focused on how we are using our, our, our funds also in the future. We have... Um, always tried to, to extend the work of urban, of urban Union. And, uh, of course, in the last term, we also had to reduce the staff in our office. I think changing and using funds in another way is, is a kind of a, a good signal in an organization. We, sometimes we need to do things in another way, not just the way we are doing it. 
because it can be more effective to do it in, in another way. And I, I think we, we, the, the change we did in, in our staff and in our, in our office was a very good way to think over, rethink how we are using the funds, and maybe we are more effective today than we were at that time. My conclusion is that um, it is possible to raise funds. It is possible to extend our work, but we have to find ways to do that. Uh, I was very satisfied yesterday when our new uh, first vice president, uh, Fernando from ONTE, uh, told about his background. I think that can give us something new into, into, into the work, and I think that is good. We need to look at the private sector. We need to share experiences. We need to utilize the experiences in our uh, member uh, countries, in our member organizations. I know there are a lot of expertise in many of our, of, uh, our, of, uh, of our organizations. So we need, uh, I think we need to sit down together, talk to the fundraising experts and try to find new ways to mobilize funds for our organization. And I, I think that will be the future too. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arndt. Some very profound and critical issues presented to us. You heard in the budget presentation several mentions of projects. And I'd like to ask our CEO, Dr. Penny Harton, to speak on the matter of projects. And perhaps we might call this segment Myth and Reality. Penny, please. Right. Thanks very much, Charles. Projects are a wonderful thing to have, and they enable, they enable the World Blind Union to extend what we do in a very significant way. And they're a blessing, and they, they can be a bit of a, a problem if you don't have the the infrastructure to support the projects. We have been very successful, I believe, within the World Blind Union to have been able to extend the work that we do in a way that we wouldn't otherwise be able to through three very significant projects over the time that, um, probably over the last um, six or seven years. The first was the funding we got from the um, government of Ontario and Canada, uh, the Trillium Foundation, to establish the Project Aspiro website. That was a $300,000 grant. That was a lot of money. But that enabled us to develop an employment resource that we were able to support our members around the world with. For the last five years, we have been receiving funding through CBM, to support our representation and advocacy work, and that's ongoing funding. 
We are now in the second project with the Open Society Institute Foundation for the Marrakesh Treaty. The first project was about a year and a half, and it helped provide support for our members to support the ratification process. And then the second phase continues that ratification and, inc and improves the implementation. With those projects, we're able to extend the reach, extend the, 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 the work, extend the professionalism of the World Blind Union, and provide some capacity and support to our members around the world. So those projects are a really good thing. Those projects come with them a great deal of planning, a great deal of management, um, a great deal of stewardship, a great deal of reporting. And so we have to have the ability that if we're going to take on projects, that we're going to do them well. And then if we do them well, we'll have the opportunity to continue. The CBM is now supporting us for the fifth year. If, if we weren't if we weren't doing what we were saying we were going to do within the project, if we weren't providing those quarterly reports on time and accurately, we wouldn't be continuing to get that funding. For the Open Society Institute Foundation, if we hadn't provided them with all of the reports that they require, all of the detail, both in terms of all of our activities, all of the financial, um, um, all the financial reporting, and so on, we wouldn't have got this second year. In fact, I don't know if you're aware, but we were actually invited last year to submit a proposal. We were told that $300,000 had been earmarked for us, so if we could put the proposal together quickly, we'd probably have it. That comes about from, from um, being diligent in both putting together a project and then in managing the project. I say that because... That's all done through the infrastructure. And the projects, the projects do support the organization, but as we said in the budget, it's less than 10%. So if you have a project for, you know, actually I can, I can say the CBM project, 75,000, we get 5,000 towards, towards our um, admin and evaluation, which we really appreciate, but it probably doesn't pay actually for what we have to do. The Open Society Institute Foundation, we get 10% of that. Um, that's actually higher than most. It wouldn't pay for what actually is required for the accounting that, that, we, that we need to engage CNIB to do on our behalf for all the reporting and so on. So projects are a really good thing and I really encourage us to do projects but we can't fool ourselves into thinking that by getting a bunch of projects, we're actually going to generate a lot of revenue towards the World Blind Union. We're going to generate revenue that supports our work and our core work, and that's really important. And I honest, honestly want us to continue to do that. But we're, we have to be careful how many of those projects we, that we have, because each project that we, that we get that requires the management, the reporting, uh, the sustainability, to do a really good job with it so that we'll get more projects, that takes, that takes um, 
um, more resources to, to do it. So it's a bit of a, what they call in English a catch-22. I don't know how our translators <laughs> translate that, but it's a really wonderful thing to extend our work, but it's, it creates probably more demands on our core infrastructure than it provides revenue towards that infrastructure to help build it. So I want you to be aware of that. We, that doesn't mean we're going to stop applying for projects because we're developing some excellent relationships with, with funders because we do a good job in managing the projects and reporting on the projects. So we have the opportunity to, do, to get more of them and then to extend what we can do for our members. But we need to be aware that each one of those we do, it's going to bring with it responsibilities on our part. We need to make sure that we have the ability to um, maintain those responsibilities. So it's a really, really good thing, but it's, it, it has a, as I also say in English, it has some strings attached <laughs> that we need to be aware of. So I hope that's helpful just to kind of explain where projects fit and that they're, 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 they're not really a revenue generator, but they're, they're a capacity development generator for our members, that's for sure. Thank you. Thank you, Penny. Now, moving to something else of critical importance, you heard mention of the revenue that's raised for WBU by or through membership fee payments. Yes, everybody's wallets now start tingling and twitching. Now, uh, we have a very flexible fee structure, and I think it's important that we all come to the best possible understanding of it, and the best possible person to explain it to us is, again, our treasurer, Mr. Mittal. A.K., if you please. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman, sir. If I heard the chair right, he termed the previous presentation as a myth and reality. I don't have the chair's linguistic ability. He's a celebrated man of letters. In my own small way, though, I thought I'll term my presentation as membership participation. And as the chair has said, we'll talk about payment of membership fee. Just a few things that I wish to reflect upon collectively with you. Um, hearing Penny's report in the first session, we noted that the, WB, the WBU has a total membership of 179, 179 members. And we also heard Penny stating that 44 of these members are non-financial. Right. This, however, still brings into sharp focus the fact that a very large number of members are paying. So our sincere appreciation to the members who have been regularly paying. A. B, however, because of the non-payment of membership fee, the receivable account keeps on mounting. The pay membership fees which have not been received. 2014, this total unreceived membership fee amounts to that about $92,000. In 
In 2015, it went up to $102,000. By the end of June 2016, it has climbed up to about $120,000. Now, what, does, what is the implication? The implication is that uh, some part of the unpaid fees, unpaid invoiced fees, has to be written off each year, about fifteen to $20,000. And the implication of that writing off, friends, is that it is reflected on our expense side, which is a kind of a, a, a strain on our unrestricted assets because this is totally unproductive expenditure. So that's point number two. Point number three, friends, the chair has said that we indeed have a very flexible system of membership fee. Going back a little, in 2008 at the 7th General Assembly in Bangkok, we had adopted for, adopted for ourselves a very systematic structure of membership fee whereby we had four levels, four separate levels. At, uh, I won't go into details because we don't have time, but every, all of us know what are those four levels. At that meeting, at that General Assembly itself, a membership fee committee was constituted. And we'll take a moment or two in talking about the membership fee committee. This is the committee which is composed of the following. Your treasurer is the chair, and more importantly, each president of our regional union is represented as a member of the membership fee committee. So we have six regional unions. The regional presidents are on the committee. Then there are some other table officers nominated by the president, like the secretary general, chair development committee, and of course our CEO. It is the task of this membership fee committee to monitor membership fee payment situation and to provide relief wherever required. We'll talk about the relief in a moment. Since 2008 till date, the membership fee committee has had about 12 meetings. And at these meetings, relief of one kind or another has been approved by the membership fee committee for about 60 applications. Now, 60 applications doesn't mean 60 separate countries, but uh, it, it, it means 60 applications, perhaps in one case for one quadrennium, perhaps in another case for another quadrennium. But there are 60 applications which have been addressed. What is the flexible mechanism that we're talking of? The mechanism is that, yes, we have a, a, a laid-down structure of fees, but the same membership um, fee guidelines provides for relief of at least three kinds for members in having genuine problems in, in payment of their fees. What are those three types of relief? One, the, 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 the membership fee can be reduced in, uh, in, in, in cases, in deserving cases. And the reduction can be from 75% to 50%. That's one. Number two, 
we've talked of four levels of uh, four fee levels there is also provision that in some cases a member having genuine problems could apply for reclassification that is if a member is placed in an upper mid category if he has genuine problems he can the member can write to the office and the office will bring it to the membership fee committee the request could be that they they may be reclassified not as upper mid but as lower mid category so on and so forth that relief is also available thirdly in some cases especially in high income groups if there is a small state issue then again some relief whatever is admissible or feasible is also considered and i said three i am now reminded that there is a fourth one also which is in a few genuine cases where it is felt that the member member has the competence in kind relief in fee fee payment is also allowed that is a member could undertake translation of wbu documents in certain languages and uh, the translation work could be evaluated and corresponding fee relief be approved however it's not one person who grants relief of course we have a very liberal president it is not the president who does it it's not the treasurer who does it it's your entire committee on which each region is represented through its its president i had the honor of working on this committee for the last 8 years and we had a definite practice that whenever we received an application for relief of one kind or another from a member of course our ceo was always good enough to compile the facts and bring it to our notice but the first first entity we would go to for a response was always the president of the concerned region from where the application has originated and uh, the committee has as we have been speaking been trying to provide relief as much as possible however that does not mean that does not mean that since there is relief provision one must go for it relief is approved as i said 60 cases during the last during these two quadrennials it has been done but it has to be on on a case to case basis in really deserving situations so that friends is the situation regarding the membership fee payment issue there are as i said most members have been paying some have not and amongst those some are a couple whose membership payment arrears have really really climbed up now that will mean that the amount a certain portion of the amount will have to be written off in the office by the end of 2016 and there will be a corresponding loss on the expenditure side so ladies and gentlemen i'll just conclude by appealing to you once again most members are paying those who are not please contribute your might to your own organization and if you have genuine difficulties please do not hesitate 
to apply for admissible relief to the committee. And then it's the committee who will take the final view, the committee on which your own regional president is also represented. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, AK. Now, to perhaps sum up or provide a general overview, um, our last speaker on the panel is Dr. Fred Schroeder, first vice president of WBU and our incoming president. Fred, if you please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Charles. <clears throat> Good morning. So I'm going to make the interpreter's life very difficult. There is an expression in English that means that someone is fully committed, that they are absolutely determined to get something done. And the term is that they will stop at nothing. So people will, most people will stop at nothing to provide for their families. But it has a double meaning. And a good friend of mine used to say, when it comes to giving, most people will stop at nothing. <laughs> Which means zero money. So I apologize to the interpreters uh, for an American play on words. So. You've heard all of the details, but in summing up, I would say we have one resource, and one resource only, and that is one another. Some of us in this room will have the ability to help identify funding sources and to raise money, and some will not. But it is a serious commitment. It is something that is needed. Think of some of the things that you heard yesterday reported. The work that we're doing on implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. The work that is now going on in implementing the Marrakesh Treaty. The Marrakesh Treaty would not have come about were it not for the collective will and advocacy of blind people worldwide. We know what the needs are. But addressing those needs requires resources. So what do we do? Well, if we want to expand what we are able to achieve, we need to find the resources to do it. And I don't mean to sound as though I'm lecturing. I'm lecturing myself, frankly, as much as anyone else in saying we, we need to really apply our own imagination, our own mechanisms for raising funds within our individual countries and regions to help support the work of the World Blind Union. And the final thing I would say is raising money, finding new funding sources, that is helpful. But one thing you should know is our CEO, Penny Harton, is extremely careful with the resources that we have. I can tell you there is not one dollar that is wasted. That doesn't mean that we don't put money to the things that we need to support, 
the evenings, I hope all of you are taking advantage of the evening sessions that are going on around implementation of Marrakesh, implementation of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. These are important trainings to help you as you go back and push for expanded opportunities for blind people in your individual countries. And those trainings are made available through our staff at our world office. It's an important resource, and it's one of the things that, that requires uh, a certain amount of funding. Helping people get to the World Assembly is very expensive. So finally, I would say to you that the money that we do have is used very carefully, and with Penny's uh, guidance, I would say it's used very wisely. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Fred. Now we have an opportunity uh, for some comments and questions. Uh, remembering, though, that we must leave a few minutes before 10.30 for a report from the Nominations Committee. But before that, uh, it is possible uh, for, some, for some questions and comments. Um, let me, if I may, remind you of the guidelines when it comes to questions and comments. If you wish to speak, and that's delegates and associate members only, please, then indicate your wish by raising your country name. name you will be recognized by country, not by your name. Uh, when you are recognized, please identify yourself. And if you're addressing your question to a particular member of the panel, please uh, say so. And most importantly, in order to give as many people as possible a chance to speak, please keep your questions very concise and short. We offer a guideline of about 90 seconds. That's 90 seconds, not 90 minutes. Uh, and we would appreciate, uh, appreciate it if you would follow these guidelines as carefully as you can. Anyway, the floor is now open. India, India please. Thank you, Mr. Chair. This is S.K. Rungta, President ABU. Uh, one suggestion and one small declaration of contribution. Suggestion on the, on the issue of project funding, I would suggest that uh, WBU leadership could consider inviting projects from the region on priority areas and region and WBU head, uh, headquarters could work together for finding funds for those projects. This will strengthen better coordination between the regions and the WB headquarters on one hand and also probably uh, uh, extend the scope of activities of WBU and its visibility in the regions. The small announcement uh, of our declaration of small a humble contribution, uh, and that too from developing country, 
and also from a developing region. Though this announce, this declaration and commitment is from my organization, National Federation of Blind India, but it is on behalf of my region, Asian Blind Union, and this is a humble contribution of USD 3,000 per year uh, for administrative expenses. And another announcement, another announcement, host, uh, total hosting cost of one executive or officers meeting in the discretion of the new coming president. Thank you very much. Thank you. International, please. Uh, Paul Lüneburg, honorary life member. We heard that 44 of our national members are not in financial good standing. This is 25% of our national members. After the amending of our constitution, national members in, which are not in good financial standing have a new position in our union. Uh, to keep our representativity towards UN and other organs, it is extremely important that we <coughs> keep contact as much as possible with these 44 uh, national members. I'm sure the table office who are uh, leaving their positions today have done their utmost together with the office to solve the problem. But new initiatives must be taken in the next four years term and with <coughs> a new secretary general with eight years of experience as treasurer I hope you will take a personal initiative towards each of these 44 international, uh, national members to try to settle an arrangement for the future paying of their membership fee. We need that, all of us. Thank you. Thank you. AK, there's a challenge for you. <laughs> Thailand, please. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, this is Montien from Thailand. Um, I've noticed that we have gone for a long time th uh, to make this uh, membership fee structure work. Although I am very much well understanding the situation that some countries cannot afford it and some countries are still struggling, I think we should try to get through this um, in good faith uh, I'd like to see if we can explore possibility of economic empowerment for our member organizations um, to lead by example by many countries that have established, for example, cooperative or social enterprises. Uh, or national organization can be developed into a self-sustained um, profit-making wing so that can generate income 
Once our national members are self-sufficient in their economic status, they can contribute not only through membership fee to the WBU, but they could also contribute uh, to some other initiatives. So I would encourage the new administration to think about this, how we can uh, take initiative of economic empowerment for organizations um, through uh, establishment of a federation of cooperatives in the region or social enterprise to earn enough revenues. And I mean true modern approach to social enterprise, not a sheltered workshop that we also are afraid of. Thank you very much. Thank you. A good point. Guatemala. The microphone is coming, I believe. Thank you. Muy buenos días. Jorge Luis Lopez from Guatemala is saying hello. And in Guatemala, we, as a National Association of the Blind, we had to do a startup active activity with a local entity from our municipal areas in order to have the resources that were necessary in order to be able to pay for the membership dues of our organization, even requesting. Um, a, um, a reduction uh, uh, for the WBU and for the members, and that's on, from on one hand. And I would also, I would like to ask a question to the executive director Penny, and regarding the situation about the projects. And we, we are working in Guatemala with different projects, or we do the proposals. Uh, for the public sector, uh, for the different institutions of the state, and also we do that with the private companies. And my question directly is, does the WBU, can it uh, support, not specifically with financial resources, but with basically with the image of the union itself in order to be able to do this type of, uh, of proposals for projects locally uh, uh, for these uh, public and, and private institutions in order to be able to have the enough weight or support behind our shoulders whenever we locally do these efforts of uh, gathering resources for these types of projects. And of course, uh, having the image of the WBU, then we would be able to have more success in order to be able to have the approval for these projects and also to be able, we would have to work jointly so that the results and um, the, uh, the reports of the usage of these resources that are approved, uh, they, we would have to work jointly with the WBU. So the direct question is if this is possible. Thank you. Penny, can you respond to that issue? Is, is this microphone on? Yes. yes, thank you. I know that our regions and our members have, um, they would really benefit from s some project support to be able to help develop the projects and so on. The total truth is that I would be the one that would be doing it. And if you, <laughs> if you looked at my <laughs> workload, I, I honestly... Um, I would love to be able to promise that I could do that for you, but um, 
with the global projects that we have and every other responsibility that, that I have in my role, um, I honestly couldn't possibly promise to do that. So if we would want to have a resource that would actually assist our members to develop projects, you know, to support the, um, uh, the private sector, for private sector support and so on, we would actually have to invest in another resource in the WBU office. I guess that's what comes back to my comment about projects. It takes a great deal of work to put projects together, proposals together, the management of, of those. And so each time you add that, it adds to the infrastructure. So um, to provide that kind of support to our members, which would be wonderful, we would have to invest in, in the capacity to be able to do that. Thank you, Penny. Spain. Hi, good morning. This is Fernando Riaño speaking. Hola, buenos días. Eh, quería hacer algunas reflexiones, eh, comentarios. Comments regarding uh, some of the interventions, especially starting with uh, um, basically supporting what was commented by the president of the, the WBC, and also to say that regarding to everything that has related to the sustainability, financial sustainability, I believe that we have a challenge there, which is an important challenge, and some of the details of these challenges have been mentioned, but I think that the challenge is not only in that first topic related to the economic section or the focus of the economic things are very important. They're, they're indispensable. They're very necessary. And I think we also have to think about more than that. We have to think long term about how those challenges or those re, uh, economic resources are going to allow us to grow in order to be grow in order to do more. So I believe that there's a challenge that has been commended. I think is a challenge which is also a great opportunity. And I think it has to do with the aspect related to our organization, our um, with our, our WBU, and I believe that that will allow us to be able to showcase more of the work that we do. It's a, it's a work that has to do with communication, with diffusing what we do in our work, and that type of type of that work, it, of course, will be part of that would be to be able to get closer to people, to organizations, to companies, uh, to uh, public administrations, in order to be able to get them to know the type of work, the development that we're doing, and the, and the widespread action that we're doing, and the services that we're providing, and the type of population that we are serving and that we are representing as well as an organization. And I believe that we also have a challenge within this road in order to be able to generate the trust that we need. And generating that trust is before the ability to be able to generate new joint ventures that would uh, allow us to be able to have uh, more resources. So I think that the, an important thing related to this uh, road, and I think that uh, we all have a lot of topics that, that uh, we, should, we, we should be using as references, like, for example, like the, the sustainability objectives uh, development and also concepts as uh, um, corporate responsibility and, and also in, in the private as well as the public sector, and they should be able to help us to be able to give value to our work. And at the same time, I believe, I believe that... Um that uh, it would be a question, of course, that we should work on and probably we should be able to um, be conscious of the fact that we have to count with the help or the support from different countries at the level of the regions as well. And uh, I believe that that is the road to go on. Uh, maybe at the individual level, at the personal level, at the level of a country or a region, maybe there's a moment where we think we can go very fast and even sometimes we could do even very, very fast. But this type, this is just at the long, the short term, but the 
long term, which I think is what we should be focusing on, and I think that we should be going towards. I think that we're going to be going a lot further, a lot further, if we all do it together. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Thank you. Thank you. Now we do have some very important business to transact before the end of the session at ten thirty. And that has to do with nominations and forthcoming elections. And so, I apologize to those who did want to speak, but the time has come for us to close this part of the session. And I'd like to recognize the chair of our nominations committee, William Rowland, who is going to uh, update us on the status of nominations and forthcoming elections. Following his presentation and the words from the candidates, um, we will be receiving more instructions regarding the election process. So, William, if you are here. just getting organized and set here. Okay. Uh, thank you, Chair Charles, and good morning all. Um, Chairman, I had my hand up to speak about fundraising, so you cut me short. I was very disappointed. <laughs> I do apologize. <laughs> not seeing each other, perhaps. Um, we, this is the final report from the Nominations Committee to deal with the election for second vice president. Uh, there are a couple of uncertainties here which we will deal with. First of all, let me remind you that we announced yesterday that Fayez al-Azmi from Kuwait has withdrawn. Um, I've just received a message within the last 10 seconds that another candidate might have withdrawn. I would just like to call on him to indicate whether that is so. Has Muhammad Krubali withdrawn or is he still? Because we haven't received a withdrawal form. Muhammad, are you still in the elections? We need the microphone, we can't hear. Yes, certainly I have withdrawn my candidature because uh, we had a meeting, so I am pro-unity of Africa, not pro-division, where three people are contesting from Africa. Mm. And from that, having announced that I have called um, room 247 so that I could announce, I couldn't have anyone to speak to, and I left a message um, through phone. That's that fine. I've that, abdicated, yeah. That sounds like a very commendable step. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. 
That leaves us with three candidates for the position of second vice president. The first of these candidates is Mohamed Ezawi of Morocco. Second candidate, Eli Macha from Tanzania. Third candidate, Diane Bergeron from Canada. Those are the three candidates. With your permission, Chair, I think I have your permission to allow the candidates to make their brief addresses. Please. Yes. Um, who's doing the timer? Okay. Um, you will be restricted uh, to three minutes, and um, I will draw your attention to, to you if you overstep that time limit. Um, the first candidate is Mohamed Izawi from Morocco, who for passport problem reasons is not with us and he was going to nominate somebody to speak on his behalf. Is there a speaker for Mohammed Ezawi? If so, please identify yourself and give your name when you start speaking. Teria, can you tell us what's happening? Hello. Uh, um, I'm, I'm talking on behalf of uh, Mohamed Zelawi. Your name and country, please. My name is Luis Benedicto from Tanzania. Talking on behalf of Mohamed Zelawi, who is unfortunately not present. Okay, but, your three minutes starts now. Please go ahead. Uh, but, yes, three minutes, but very shortly, one minute is enough. Okay. Yeah. Um, if Muhammad could have been here, could have already or could have already done what Muhammad from Gambia has already done, because it was uh, the information given yesterday uh, to be uh, considered as what Muhammad from Gambia has already introduced it to us. So. On behalf of him, I would like also to say that it has been withdrawn. Thank you. Oh. Okay. Thank you. That leaves us with two candidates. Okay. Unless they withdraw as well, of course. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, I think this is very statesmanlike from the African candidates. And... Uh, uh, it's nice to see the African continent cooperating in this way. Yeah. So the, we're now left with two candidates, and the first candidate to speak will be Eli Macha from Tanzania. That's very good. 
Thank you very much, Chair. Uh, dear delegates, uh, distinguished guests, my name is Eli Macha. I'm from Tanzania. I lost my sight at the age of three, so I grew up blind. Um, at the very early age, I joined my local uh, branch of Tanzania League of the Blind, and within two years, uh, at the age of 19, I became the chair of one of the local branches. Then, Tanzania League of the Blind established a women's wing. I happened to be the secretary of the women's wing of Tanzania League of the Blind, of the blind for five years. Um, I joined Tanzania Society for the Blind as an education officer coordinating education for the visually impaired children. Um, in 2004, 2005 and 2010, I happened to be the executive director of the African Union of the Blind. The six years I worked there, which I felt was very rewarding, and I believe those were very successful six years within AFUB. My friends in Nairobi used to tease me to say, Ellie, are you married to AFUB? And because I dedicated my time, my energy, to ensure AFUB develops. But then, um, uh, I want also to tell you that a um, uh, few years ago, I visited my church on uh, a Sunday. I went to my church, and that Sunday there was um, a visiting pastor. And after the service, the pastor called me and said, Ellie, do you want to see? And I said, no, uh, please don't see that I'm being rude to you. I don't want to see because... Uh, I want you, I want to be the role model. I want to show the world that blindness is not an ob obstacle. Um, I, told, I told the pastor, please, I, I, I'm requesting you to pray for the poorest countries of the world to get the resources which can help those countries combat uh, blindness because 80 to 90 percent of causes of blindness are preventable. So please, Pastor, pray for that. And I'm standing here today, dear friends, appealing for your votes because I want to join this esteemed team of WBU. 30 seconds. Of WBU to ensure rights and inclusion of blind and partially sighted persons uh, become the agenda of the world in, through the Marrakesh Treaty through the CRPD, and through the Sustainable Development Goals. Thank you. I, I appeal for your vote. Right. Maybe you've noticed that we've got two women candidates. Our other candidate now to speak, Diane Bergeron of Canada. Good morning, buenos dias, bonjour. Je voudrais, je voudrais dire I would like to thank you to give me a chance with this job of second vice president. Uh, my name is Diane Bergeron. I work for the, the Canadian uh, Agency for the uh, Blind for all that it is uh, strategic uh, politics and for 
everything that's communication. It is important for us to come here, oh, pardon, to talk about the issues and to come together as friends and colleagues. It's also important for us to remember that we come here with different experiences, with different knowledge, skills, and education. And as table officers, there is a responsibility that we represent not just our regions, but the regions all around the world. We are all trying to improve the quality of life for people who are blind and partially sighted after all. It is for this reason, reason that over the last year, I traveled to Uganda, to Uruguay, and to the EBU, General Assembly, to the UK, to better understand the issues facing people who are blind and partially sighted outside of the realm of my knowledge and experience within my region. In the last few years, as a member of WBU, I have participated on the development working group looking at resources and, work and toolkits to assist people in developing countries. I have a, had the extreme honor of chairing the Youth Engagement and Leadership Committee. These youth are our future. These are our people of tomorrow. And it behooves us to help mentor and encourage them to become the leaders that are going to take over WBU when we are no longer here. I've also had the honor of working with the Women's Network. I am very passionate about women's issues. We are doubly discriminated against all over the world. There is violence, there is lack of education and employment, and that must change. I would be honored and privileged to represent you as the second vice president, as a table officer, to listen and be educated and learn about the issues over the next four years, focusing on making sure that the quality of life of all people who are blind or partially incited are improved moving forward. Merci beaucoup. Muchas gracias. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup. Um, are we not really blessed in the World Blind Union to have this strength of knowledge and experience right down to second vice president level? And um, the next step will be the election. Thank you. That concludes my report. Thank you, William. Now I'd like to offer the floor to Terry Iverson, our returning officer, who will provide us with information on the election process. Terry. Thank you, Charles. Yeah, yesterday we had four candidates and somebody asked me, what is your favorite candidate? I said, ah, but I'm a returning officer. I, it will be a bit difficult, but I, I will give you an answer. My favorite candidate is the one that has more than 50% of the votes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as the situation is now, I'm sure that will happen. So I will have a favorite candidate today. Um, what I have to explain to you is that we have the same procedure as yesterday. You will get the same type of envelope. Inside that envelope, you will find a small envelope with a slightly different uh, cut on the envelope compared to yesterday, so that we make sure that you don't sneak in any leftover envelopes from yesterday. 
The complication is, as you heard, two withdrawals now on the floor, which means that we have no chance to remove those voting ballots from the envelope. So you will have four ballots in your envelope, and you have to choose between two of them. So you have to choose between Diane and Ellie. So I apologize for that confusion, but the time is too short for us to start changing the envelopes at this stage. So I only have to appeal to you that you come back on time after the coffee break and you sit on your country places and that you have your badges reduced to make the identification more easy. Uh, and that you come on time. You come before 2.30 because, as I said yesterday, there was a couple of people that wanted to vote around 3.30, which was a bit too late. That's it. So please come to the voting room. We, st we open the voting room at latest 12.30. We will start handing out voting papers immediately after the coffee break. Thank you. I hand over to Charles. Thank you. Finally, we have two quick logistical announcements, so please listen carefully. These are important. The first announcement is a reminder to make sure that you get your gala ticket. If you're attending the gala, you need to make sure that you exchange your green invitation for an orange ticket at the welcome desk by 7 o'clock this evening. Second announcement, the, ex the technology exhibition is now open. It'll be open until 7 p.m. in the junior ballroom. Again, that's the exhibit hall. Junior Ballroom, open now until 7 p.m. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our session. Tea and coffee await us. Thank you for your kind attention. We are adjourned. Yo. Okay, we have reached the first tea break of the day. And that was uh, Charles Mossop was yeah, chairing Charles, this morning. Absolutely. Uh, those who attended or listened to the ACB National Convention would recognize his name and voice. He was our international speaker on the general program and attended the Library Users of America discussion about uh, books that he had written because he is a published author as well in areas of historical fiction. So, yep. boy, the politics have changed, have they not, Larry? Uh, yeah. So we and go from too many candidates to just enough candidates yeah. to hold an election. Yep. And how exciting is it that both candidates are women in an organization very, very that nice. is really committed to the idea that we need female leaders in the world of blindness and low vision? Well, you know, we need, you know, we face this enough in, in the rest of the world and even here in our own country, in the United States, we need more diversity. And Absolutely. That is, that is the key right there. And the World Blind Union is showing a very good example of that, of getting more uh, 
female candidates. Absolutely. And I might add, not just female, but highly qualified Absolutely. female candidates. Yeah. These are not women who are running on the fact that they are, in fact, women. They're women who have worked at all levels of their respective organizations and have showed some real interest and involvement in international issues as well. Absolutely. What a great combination. I mean, there, as I was saying to others here at the ACB radio table, uh, it's a win-win situation. Whichever woman wins, WBU wins. That's exactly right. And, of course, the next session coming up, we'll be talking, they will be talking about uh, influencing public policy to include blind and partially sighted persons. That's right. We have uh, another person I'm quite familiar with, Aubrey Webson, a former employee of the Perkins School for the Blind. He was in charge of their international efforts and left there a little over two years ago to take on ambassador from Antigua in the Caribbean, from Antigua to the United Nations. Uh, Nice gentleman. Had dinner with him last night. Uh, a really hard work, and I'm sure he's going to add quite a bit to the program later this morning. We return for those activities at 11 o'clock or shortly thereafter, depending on how quickly one can get through the tea break. Uh, I'm also expecting an interviewee during this tea break. I hope that Moses is able to find his way to us. Larry, what did you think of the financial reporting of this morning? Um, very... I mean, very clear about what's going on, but again, you know, it's, it's the same thing that a lot of organizations are facing at this point. You know, we, we have to keep working on ways to fundraise. Uh, money is tighter these days, a lot tighter, and there's no be- there's no magic bullet answer to this, unfortunately. No, and again, since we're yeah. talking about an international organization, That means a significant portion of our member nations are developing countries. And so their ability to pay their dues, a a significant problem for the WBU, and their ability to raise funds to provide support for the international organization are somewhat limited. So the, I always refer to it as the have and the have not countries. The have countries, those who do have resources um, have to pitch in, if you will, more than their fair share in terms of you know the size of their populations and that kind of thing, just to keep the boat afloat. I thought one of the more interesting discussions in that whole business came from Penny Harden, who indicated as the CEO of the WBU, boy, it sounds like alphabet soup, doesn't it? But that uh, even when we get funding to support projects, that funding comes with it with an obligation to report appropriately to the funder. And that takes staff, and staff takes money. And so even if we get funding for, say, a $100,000 project, uh, it may cost us $10,000 to administer that project. And that money has to come from general funds. And that's, so, that, that, that kind of gives you, you know, that kind of brings me to the point of, you got this catch twenty two. There are no grants for general 
operation expenses. Exactly, exactly. And that is where a lot of organizations are falling short is they're not getting enough income to offset the general operation expenses. Now, I was also interested in uh, a current treasurer's discussion uh, about how one goes about the process of dealing with, well, quite honestly, membership fees in arrears, meaning the unpaid membership fees over time. Uh, but it sounds to me as if they've done well in terms of creating a structure to deal with that, but not necessarily seeing the results they'd anticipate in that process. They have to write off, uh, what do you say, $20,000 a year? Something like that, In yeah. unpaid dues in arrears. But uh, while they have dealt with 60, that's six zero, uh, appeals for some form of membership dues relief, I was also interested in in hearing that the relief does not extend to 100% relief, but somewhere between 50 and 75% relief. Nonetheless, they seem to have done all the right things administratively to get things rolling properly. Now it's all in the hands of those organizations that are in arrears to do something about it, or perhaps those organizations that aren't in arrears to assess those who are by donating in their name to bring their accounts up to current. Lots of opportunities there for partnering between, again, the have nations and the have not nations. Right. right. And we all have that problem that uh, when you raise funds, you really would like to spend it locally where it will have the impact on your membership if you're a membership organization or your primary, if I may use that term, your primary uh, audience if you're a organization for the blind as opposed to of the blind not not an easy thing to do to explain the need for that when you go home and you get to speak to your home board about how to allocate their resources and yet it needs doing uh, much of what it means to be a blind or visually impaired person in this nation applies to this world and we can't simply make an enclave in our hometowns of full accessibility and ignore the fact that the minute we step out of our towns, we are suddenly people of little value in the eyes of the public around us. Yep. So uh, it looks like Moses went to tea break, didn't he? I guess he figured he would uh, <laughs> go drink some tea rather than... Uh, yeah, rather than show up here. Well, yeah. I, I was hoping otherwise. He was here at the table this morning. Uh, asking some good questions and getting just some, to, some advice. but Yep, and just to let everybody know, um, I know some have been having trouble finding the WBU archives, so I've made it a little easier. Um, you can still get them on the podcast feed, ACB Events. That's uh, acbradio.org slash acb-events.xml if you're using a podcatching device. I've also posted the links to Friday's session and Saturday's session on the WBU 2016 page, and that's acbradio.org slash WBU2016, and that's where you can download those archives the conventional way like you normally do from any website. Very good. Larry, see, you've been very busy. After session, 
you know, session ends at 6 p.m. Uh, people would like to get out and have uh, their evening meal, but Larry heads up to his room with all of his gear and starts processing audio files to get them all to where they need to be. And in that particular case, also did a bit of uh, web page editing, correct? That's correct. You got it. Yeah. It doesn't stop when uh, the microphones turn off. It's just no, the next step in the process. Yeah, and of course at the hotels we do with we deal with uh, varying speeds of internet connections. So sometimes it takes a little while to upload these files. Uh, so it could take as much as a couple of hours to get things up and set for replay. And, um, and then you have the needs of that four-legged helper of yours at your feet yeah. <laughs> to consider in the scheme of things. He's one patient dog, Larry. Yes, he is. <laughs> and I'm sure that he's just at that point where he says, it's another conference. I'm under another table. He'll get to me when he can. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, they're amazing animals. They truly, they, truly they really are. are. And believe me, I prefer, you know, at these conventions, you deal with a heavy crowd and... I prefer getting through the crowd with a dog than I do with a cane. Well, I've done in both cases. Uh, the only advantage to being a cane user in this environment is I'm not having to go enjoy the Florida humidity as often as you have to. <laughs> but you're yeah. used to it. You're from these parts at one point. How yeah. long did you live yeah. in Florida? Off and on, well, let's see. I grew up, oh, I was born in uh, South Florida in the Miami area. Lived there for a Hello. few years. My dad was in the Navy, so we moved up and down the East Coast. Yes. And lived in Washington, D.C. for a few years. After that, we came back to Florida and settled in the Jacksonville area for many years until I graduated high school. Then it was off to Atlanta, Georgia for college. And then took a job up in Michigan for about seven years. Then when that company downsized, moved back to Florida, settled in Orlando until 2013. And then, due to a lot of other personal and career circumstances, I've relocated to Springfield, Illinois, which is where I live presently. Well, Larry, you have been a traveler of this country, even if you haven't necessarily had an opportunity to travel the world. I do have a world traveler who's just joined us here at the table, and I'd like to, with your permission, uh, do a brief interview with him. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. We have with us today... Uh, a gentleman who speaks English quite well, <laughs> uh, albeit with just the slightest bit of an accent, and uh, that is Mr. William Jolly. And I, uh, again, glad that you were able to stop by and be with us today. Thanks. Tell us a bit about Bill Jolly. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be with you and, and uh, to talk to listeners of AC ACB Radio. So my, I'm uh, Bill Jolly from Australia. I've been uh, active in uh, the World Blind Union, not, not so active just recently, but uh, was very active in, uh, in the 1990s, uh, assisting with resolutions, nominations, uh, the returning officer and so on. And, and of course, we had a very uh, enjoyable WBU General Assembly in uh, Australia in the year 2000 that uh, many people came to and, and, and loved. So a bit about me, I, I uh, was uh, involved in the formation of Blind Citizens Australia back in uh, 1975. I went to work as a uh, mathematician and then as a manager of computerised braille production and later as executive officer of, of uh, Blind Citizens Australia and finally in our Communications and Media Authority, which is like your uh, FCC here in the, in the United States, the Federal Communications 
Commission. And these days I'm a, uh, a director, a member on the board of Vision Australia, our large uh, blindness agency, as well as still involved with Blind Citizens Australia. And uh, it's great to be back at the WBU as a, as a delegate from uh, Australia, and I've been enjoying the, uh, enjoying the program. I'm curious because you have held a number of positions in the WBU, as you said, the return officer, uh, and I was a delegate from the United States at that wonderful Australian meeting in Melbourne. Boy, was it that many years ago. Yes, yeah, it was, it was a few years ago. And I found that one thing that you were able to do that they're struggling quite honestly here to deal with is the moving of people in and out of the voting room. Uh, as I recall, we came in one door, deposited our ballots, and then exited a different door. That's not proving to be the case here, is it? Uh, no, the, the arrangement is different here. I, I, I uh, did feel that I was going on a rather long walk uh, yesterday. Um, we, we, I've, we've nicknamed us Australians, we've nicknamed that uh, long corridor that we walk along to come to the meeting room here as the uh, uh, Nelson Mandela long walk to freedom. Because it's a, it's a very uh, long walk and it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a very good hotel. This I must say it's it's uh, very convenient for blind people, and uh, uh, the staff are very good. Um, but y- yes, the voting arrangements is it was a little congested in the uh, in the alleyways yesterday as we were as we were coming and going. But we all got our votes done and and uh, and that worked qu- quite successfully. And we'll have another interesting uh, vote this afternoon for the position of second vice president. A well, candidate sure. from Canada yeah. and one from Tanzania. Exactly. And I bet that um, you breathe the sigh of relief for the uh, committee that deals with elections here. When they went from, at one point, five candidates down to two, it certainly means there won't be any form of runoff necessary. But at the same time, that committee had, had uh, prearranged the ballot process, anticipating four candidates, and now it's there's a probability that there'll be maybe one or two what we would call a spoiled ballot where an ineligible or no longer running person's name still ends up in the final count. But logistically speaking, this is a pretty efficient way of going about doing the whole election process, wouldn't you say? Yes, yes, it's working. It's working pretty well and the gods have smiled on the organisers as well because there hasn't been a need for a rerun or a runoff. So if, for example, you have um, three or four candidates for a position, then if the leading candidate doesn't get a majority, if, uh, at least 50% of the votes, then you have to do a uh, runoff between the uh, top two candidates. And that's, uh, that causes logistical problems because uh, you can't do subsequent votes and, until that's done. So if that had happened with the... Uh, first vice president or treasurer or, or secretary general positions that were voted yesterday, then it would have, uh, it would have uh, put things back, could have put things back a bit if one of those candidates was also um, interested in the second vice president's position. But that hasn't happened, so that's, uh, that's uh, all smooth and uh, we can uh, uh, think about the elections, go visit the exhibition and also look to the very interesting session that's coming up now about influencing uh, public policy. And uh, I think that'll be a very good session. We've got uh, Lord Colin Lowe from uh, the United Kingdom, who's the, uh, uh, the first speaker, very experienced. Uh, he was 
also ch chair of uh, Royal National Institute of Blind People. Uh, he's, he's finished that position. He's, he now has a, a um, position in the House of Lords, not a, not a inherited position, but a position awarded to him in in view of his uh, extensive community service and and uh, a commitment over over many years. And the next uh, speaker is Janet uh, Lebrecq, who's the uh, Commissioner for Rehabilitation Services Administration in the United States. So I'm sure you're much more familiar with her. Uh, than I am, but I, but uh, I think that'll be uh, good to hear from her. And then we have uh, Ellie Marcher, who's uh, a member of Parliament in Tanzania, and in fact she's got a she's the, the gods have smiled on her because she is one of the candidates for the election, so she gets the chance to uh, to present to make a presentation, nothing to do with the election, um, but it, uh, if she gives a good presentation, it must surely uh, swing a few vo votes. So she's a bit lucky, and then. Uh, after her, there's Aubrey Webson, who's the uh, has an interesting position. Aubrey does. He's the ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary, permanent uh, mission of uh, Antigua and Barbuda to the United Nations. I, I must confess, I had that written down in front of me. I couldn't remember all that. <laughs> it's a very it's a very long title, and uh, he's he's been involved with the World Blind Union for many years. Aubrey, particularly. Um, involved with the International Development Project and, and uh, is working at uh, uh, the Perkins uh, organisation for a long time and they were helping to sponsor that uh, project, I think. So we've got a good session coming up and then we have uh, regional meetings uh, this afternoon. We all split into our regions and uh, um, discuss various things and some of the regions have elections, so there's another lot of elections to go on there. So it looks like a good day. Indeed it is. Uh, it's interesting that the longer that you've spent going to these international meetings, the more of the names sound familiar. They, their titles change over time. You would expect that to be the case when we only meet uh, in the full collective once every four years. But nonetheless, names like uh, Janet Lebrecht, as you mentioned, she is the RSA Rehabilitation Services Administration uh, Director. Uh, for our national rehabilitation program, but she originally hailed from the state of Massachusetts, where I'm from. She was commissioner of our state agency, and uh, in fact, in the process of becoming commissioner, I was the runner-up for that position, so, so I'm the bridesmaid of that particular combination. Nonetheless, uh, know well, Janet quite well, <laughs> quite well, um, and then, of course, Aubrey Webson, having been from uh, the Perkins School for the Blind, uh, and dealing with international issues there. I've known him for many, many years. In fact, when Aubrey, in those travels, needed to leave his guide dog behind, a lovely golden retriever named Nova, Nova became my guide dog during those times. So, again, this is one of those things that happens when you're involved for many, many years uh, and have the opportunity to meet with and enjoy friendship as well as those political connections over time. It is an interesting thing that um, circumstances are simply creating an opportunity for a particular candidate. You know, by no means was the program set up in such a way as to give favoritism toward one candidate versus another. It's just the serendipity that, that occurs as programs change and develop over a course of quite a long time. So what else is going on in Australia? One of the things I'm the most excited about is what's happening with library services in your nation. Um, you know, many times people assume that the United States is going to be the lead in terms of technologies 
uh, of any kind. But I think Australia might be beating us to uh, this whole concept of how you distribute or um, how you are planning to distribute books to a, a huge continent-sized nation of blind and visually impaired people. We do ours through the mails. Uh, we also have a download service, but I'm on the committee for the uh, National Library Services. They developed the next talking book machine, which I think might look a little bit like what you guys are doing in Australia. Yes, well, we've made some, some very good progress. Um, it, it was more than 20 years ago, in fact, when I was, I was working for our telecommunications uh, company and I decided to do some um, personal professional development and studied up about broadband communications. And I got, got the idea into my head that we, perhaps we can use telecommunication network rather than the postal system to deliver, uh, to deliver talking books. It took more than 20 years for that uh, dream to be realised and, and one of the first countries that it was realised in, in fact, was Australia. And we have a very good system now for accessing audio books and newspapers um, through the telecommunication network. We can do it on our, our small devices like our um, PlexTalk Pocket or, or the, um, uh, the, the stream, the humanware stream product uh, but also we have a, a specially modified uh, desktop player which we refer to as a, a G3 player um, and so that has a little uh, modem in it and, and that enables uh, people to access their talking books wirelessly and, and stream them uh, over the network and, and this is uh, part of the uh, service that's provided by Vision Australia and we have about at 15,000 borrowers across Australia um, and uh, a significant number of them uh, now, I think 20% are, have made that transition to that, that new uh, generation of, of uh, talking book player and, and it's uh, working, working very well and uh, we have several hundred uh, newspapers that are, that are accessible uh, that way as well plus, plus other magazines. So it's, it's, a, uh, it's a very good, good service. I think... That, in the United States, you have a very good service too, but it's a larger, uh, it's a larger network of, of cooperating libraries, and it and it sometimes takes uh, longer for for new technologies and techniques to be introduced. But um, and I remember when the uh, Daisy system was introduced here with the new generation of players, it was uh, a few years behind uh, European and other countries, but it was a very uh, well planned and well thought out transition. And uh, and I'm sure it's been fantastic, and and uh, people will, will would be saying now, well, it was it was well worth the wait. I'm anticipating here in the United States we may do a little bit of leapfrogging. Are you familiar with the term WhisperNet and how that functions? No, I don't know that. So, in the way that a Kindle book machine accesses books without you having to hook up to a wireless network, you are able to select a book sitting in a car, moving from one place to another, wherever, and it comes directly to your device without you having to log on to something. So more in a cellular fashion than a wireless fashion. And as a result, uh, we would be in a position where an individual could do a search directly on the machine for a title, an author, a subject, go through a series of choices, select it, and then, uh, because we're talking e-text, not well, we'd be using a combination of e-text as well as audio that you could 
uh, either instantly download that, instant is a relative term, <laughs> for, for me anything that takes less than five minutes is yes, pretty yes, instant, yes, yes. Um, and then, uh, but then you wouldn't be limited to having to be where there's wireless available. I, I uh, that's a step forward, I think. I, I should explain that I use the term wireless uh, generally, in a general sense there. The, the 3G players that I referred to actually use the cellular network. But, but of course, the cellular network is just a wireless network. So I, I wasn't actually meaning uh, Wi-Fi when I, when I uh, uh, said wireless. Um, Good. So, so again, we're going to be paying catch-up rather than uh, leapfrog. But I'm, I'm perhaps so. But, not, but nonetheless, um, sometimes it's better to be second too, because uh, then the I remember a mentor of mine once talking about getting a new computer system back in uh, 1982. Uh, said, well, sometimes it's best to be second rather than first for these things, because a lot of the bugs are ironed out of the uh, the system, and and uh, it, it was it was very wise. Advice that he uh, provided. Now, you utilize uh, a mixed system at this point. Are some going through the mails to this day uh, between your borrowers as opposed to coming down through wireless systems? Yes, the, uh, some uh, CD use use CDs. So, uh, so we don't use the little cartridges like you do. We ha- we use CDs, and um, we've we've uh, endeavoured to get the higher volume users over to the three G system because that, that helps to, to reduce the, uh, the costs, obviously. But we recognise that a lot of older people and, and the majority of, of our library borrowers are people in their 70s, 80s, etc. Um, a, a lot of those people are much more comfortable with the CB, CD uh, approach than, than with the, uh, uh, the uh, internet-based or, or, or telecommunication-based system. So uh, it will be some time, and we've got to work out how we make the sort of complete that transition. Um, but yeah, so for, so at present we have a uh, have a mixed uh, system. Okay, it's about uh, time 11 to go o'clock. back on. Yep, so. and time for this to be. Hey, Bill, thank you very much for stopping by. For, Best yes, of luck definitely. with you and your organization and your uh, personal continuation with your federal agency there in Australia impacting what it means to be a blind person by way of communication. Well, thanks very much for having me and I can assure you that the stream's coming through loud and clear in Australia. I've had uh, family and friends reporting to me, but the program starts at 11 o'clock at night, so it's a bit late to hear it live, though though, uh, my my wife has used it as a sleeping medication, Uh, (laughs) but but it is, uh, of course, it's good that it's uh, repeated in the day, so it's a bit better for us. So uh, thanks, guys, and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Okay, Larry, back to you and back to the head table. All right. So, yep, we're going to go ahead and bring up the house. I think they're going to get going very shortly. So let's go ahead and bring up the house. And there we go.
Muy buenos días. Quería agradecer a WBU por invitarme a presidir esta mesa y espero que ustedes puedan tener muchos elementos de nuestros. Oh, you hope they have a lot of elements of all the different people who are speaking, who have a, have a great deal of knowledge in the area of politics uh, at the world level. And uh, we have uh, today a workshop talking about how to influence the political policies and the people that are here with us are experts in this area and we're gonna they're gonna share their experiences with us. And here on the table we have we have Mr. Colin Lowe who is the president of the ISEVI, Jeanette Lebrac, who is the Commissioner for Rehabilitation Services in the U.S. We have Ellie Macha, member of the Tanzania Parliament, and Aubrey Webson, who is a permanent commissioner for Barbuda, Antigua and Barbuda, and the, the United Nations, and she's an extraordinary ambassador. And I would like to start now, taking advantage of the time that we have to be able to share so much experience, and we're going to be inviting Colin Lowe so that uh, he can direct uh, the presentation. And uh, Mr. Colin Lowe, please. Good, good morning, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I, I hope you'll agree with that by the time I finish speaking. <laughs> like the other speakers, I've been asked to talk about influencing public policy for inclusion of blind and partially sighted persons. I shall talk about influencing public policy and how to go about it generally. What I have to say will apply as much to influencing public policy for inclusion of blind and partially sighted people as to anything else, but the, the lessons are general. The watchword is solutions, not problems. The object of our lobbying, the reason for seeking to exert influence, may be a problem in our eyes, something wrong with the existing system that needs changing. But in the eyes of the person we're trying to influence, it needs to come across as a solution, not a problem. Something that will make their life easier, not more difficult. I well remember making a presentation to a manager of mine and beginning, <coughs> the problem is, at which point he immediately cut in and said, I don't want to know what the problems are, what's the solution? So the trick will be to come up with solutions rather than simply posing problems, hopefully solutions that will en enable the, the minister or whoever it is we're lobbying to appear in a good light. 
and being resourceful in finding levers to pull and buttons to press. I remember hearing a former Minister for International Development in the Australian Government describing how they went about dealing with the problem of allocating their budget. They gave it to the organisation that provided I may. Um, they, they gave it to the organisation that <laughs> there seems to be a bit of competition here. <laughs> well, I was saying how the minister in charge of uh, international development in this Australian government went about dealing with the problem of allocating their budget. They gave it to the organisation that provided the solution to the problem that they were bringing to him. In other words, they came with the solution to the, the prob their own problem, to the problem that they were posing to the minister, knew how they wanted to spend the budget, and had the solution worked out in detail so that the work for the government was minimised. It just happened to be Vision Australia, the leading organisation for the blind in Australia. But before they will listen to your solution, paradoxically, you may need to persuade the politicians that, that there's a problem and define it for them. Perhaps by pointing out that their policy isn't working. Uh, uh, perhaps by pointing out, sorry, that their policy isn't working uh, may be counterproductive, will have unintended consequences, or, for example, that cuts spending cuts may give rise to greater costs further down the line or in other parts of the system. All these things are easily asserted but may be hard to demonstrate. It's therefore essential to be able to come up with evidence, with statistics if possible. One way to persuade politicians of your solution is by showing that it will save money. But remember that ministers are likely only to be interested in savings in their own budget. Showing that a change in policy will affect savings in another department is unlikely to cut the mustard. This is unfortunate. It would be much better if governments adopted a whole government approach, but regrettably they rarely do. The strategic Cross-departmental approach shouldn't be entirely abandoned, however. On behalf of a commission I've been chairing on access to advice services, I recently went to the Secretary of State in charge of the Cabinet Office, which has a coordinating role within government in the United Kingdom, and said that we didn't want more money. It wasn't more money we were after. Rather, we said that there were a number of central government funding streams already which were relevant, what was needed was that they be packaged more strategically in support of advice services at local level. To persuade politicians, it's necessary to be seen as credible. If you're to do this, it helps if you can establish a degree of trust. Don't simply be negative and condemn everything the government is doing. Don't say the minister is a wicked reactionary whose policy is grinding the faces of the poor even if you think it is. I've seen people do this because it gives them a good feeling, but it's not really the way to win friends and influence people. Don't say their policy is wholly wrong and misconceived. Rather, 
say there's a better way of achieving what they want to achieve. A prerequisite, if you want to appear credible, is to analyse and present the issues in a manner that chimes with the perspective of the politician concerned. Even if you don't share it, try to present things from their point of view. However experienced you are, it's never too late to learn here. I recently went uh, to see one of the Prime Minister's assistants on behalf of the advice commission I was just talking about. I delivered my commission's spiel like a broken record, and it obviously didn't cut much ice. My vice chair made me squirm afterwards when she said she wished that she'd taken the time beforehand to anticipate the angle from which he would be coming, uh, from which he'd be coming at, at things, the questions he would want addressing, and what his objectives would be. This, this is a lesson I seem to find I seem to find it particularly hard to learn. Only yesterday, I went to talk to the board of uh, DBI, DeafBlind International, who are meeting here at the same time as our conference. And I told them all about what ICEVI uh, had been doing and uh, what, we, what we'd been doing in, in the last little while. But this time, it was Dr. Marnie's turn uh, to make me squirm. Dr. Mani is our, our CEO of ICEVI. He teased out all that ICEVI had been doing that was of particular interest to the deaf-blind community. He did this at considerable length because there was quite a bit to say. This should have been my starting point. So having started this presentation with solutions, the lesson I'm taking away from it is start with the person you're trying to influence and where they're coming from. A surefire way to establish credibility and trust is to go out of your way to be as helpful as possible. In my early days on the RNIB Council, I was regarded uh, with a good deal of wariness. Up to that time, I was seen as a critic. The atmosphere changed when I offered to help write a policy document. This was seen as helpful and lightening the officer's load, and it meant that I could write in the policy I wanted at the same time. In the mid-90s, the government in the UK was gearing up for a major new education act. Our director of education in RNIB spent a couple of days a week down at the Department for Education virtually holding the pen in the civil servant's hand, writing the preliminary white papers and the subsequent legislation. At the start of the process, there was virtually nothing about special education. By the end, it took up, it took up about half the bill. All this presupposes a good relationship with the civil servants. Remember that you'll need to deal with the minister's officials as much as the minister, if not more so. If you're to convince the minister, it may be just as important to convince the officials first. To do this, it's important to find out who the key officials are, of course, uh, who are involved in preparing and drafting the relevant policy, policy and legislation. A good way to get on good terms with the officials is if you can undertake some of the analysis, the, 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 the government department doesn't have the time to do itself. 
In persuading politicians to adopt your solution, it's important to mobilise support from as many quarters as possible. Things ministers take notice of include journalists and the media, Parliament, particularly backbench MPs from their own party, other departments, legal action and the courts, and the Treasury. Getting other people and organisations with influence to use it in support of your, of, your, of your objective is also helpful, and nowadays one can launch a petition. More proactively, identify some champions you can brief and who can then spread the word in support of what, of what, you, what, what you want, what your objective is. I spoke just now about the need to be resourceful in finding levers to pull and buttons to press. The WBU were very good at this in their campaign to secure the Marrakesh Copyright Treaty. A good example was the way they put pressure on the European Union, who were among the most difficult, among the most difficult that we were negotiating with. When the European Commissioner, with responsibility in this area, held a hearing in the European Parliament, the WBU saw to it that all the participating MEPs, mem members of the European Parliament, they saw to it that all the MEPs were fully briefed in favour of the WB's position, with the result that the Commissioner was put under tremendous pressure. Finally, you should try to make people an offer they can't refuse. The Advice Commission I spoke of earlier was keen to make the case for funding, uh, funding advice services by the Health Service. We showed how the right advice in the right place produces real benefits for patient health and how early and effective advice reduces demand on the health service. Welfare advice in primary health settings can reduce the estimated 15% of their time that GPs spend on benefits issues and lead to fewer repeat, uh, repeat appointments and fewer prescriptions. The best campaign I ever came across was carried out by the Royal National Institute for Deaf People in London. Before they got started, you could either have a crap hearing aid for free on the NHS, or you could pay £2,000 to have a state-of-the-art one privately. The chief executive of the RNID went round all the hearing aid manufacturers in Europe, telling them that he could get them the biggest contract in the world from the NHS if they could just reduce their price. By playing one off against another, he eventually got the price down to something like £125, which he then offered to the health service. He then had to contend with the resistance from doctors who feared losing the commission they received for prescribing hearing aids privately. However, in the end, he was able to do a deal with the NHS whereby you could have a state-of-the-art state hearing aid on the health service, free. His successor wrote to me, and a number of other people as well, but he, he, he wrote to me to tell me what a boon this was to deaf people and their families. I replied that I knew about the boon to deaf, deaf people but I wasn't so sure about their families, and told him about my friend Dennis, whose mother-in-law, at my suggestion, had recently acquired 
one of the state-of-the-art hearing aids on the health service. When I asked how she was getting on with it, he said that she was doing fine, but I now have to be much more careful about what I say. <laughs> That's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Colin Lowe. And um, in this moment, uh, I'm waiting for Brenda to get in another transmission device because this one has no battery, so I'm a little bit without support here. And, um, and regarding this, I would like to invite uh, the next uh, speaker, who is going to be Jeanette Lebrecht, uh, who is the commissioner for um, Rehabilitation Services Administration from the USA, who's going to be giving us her talk in, at this moment. So, Janet, it's your, the mic is your, all yours. The floor is yours. Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? <laughs> okay. Good morning. Thank you very much for inviting me here today. It's an honor to be here. I understand that there's a great deal of work as well as a great deal of opportunity and innovation going on within the World Blind Union and really want to just take this opportunity to congratulate you all and commend you for the work that is going on. I think that we are at a time in our country and in our world where these issues are absolutely critical to the economic self-sufficiency as well as well-being for individuals who are blind and visually impaired. And here we are in 2016, and in the United States, this is also a very critical point in time in our country and our, our nation's legislation that has an impact on the disability community at large, as well as uh, an impact on individuals who are blind and visually impaired and for those individuals who have significant disabilities. And when you think about ways that we can influence policy and ways that we have the opportunity to leverage the existing resources, whatever those resources may be, in, in the United States, we are at a critical point in time of change, and that we knew eventually these, this day would come where, you know, stakeholders as well as legislators, there's always a discussion around the impact of the existing resources. There's never enough resources. We all know that as advocates, as individuals uh, who are blind or visually impaired, we're always struggling for resources and trying to find ways that we can maximize any opportunity to increase resources and look at it from perspectives of perspective of how important it is for us as, with, as, as individuals with disabilities to access those resources, and we also know that there's always increased demand on those specific resources. And so we are now at a critical point with our legislation for individuals with disabilities in, in the United States, and we have very new legislation. In July, on July 22nd of 2014, our president signed into law, along with Congress, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. And this is very much sweeping reform legislation for the National Vocational Rehabilitation Program that has a significant impact on individuals with disabilities as well as those individuals with significant disabilities. And it's interesting because as a child growing up with vision loss myself, uh, four out of six of my siblings have retinitis pigmentosa. And 
we grew up at a time when we didn't have much technology. We carried around the large print books, as some of you may have done as well. And I think about that, and I look at the backpacks that kids carry today, and there's no way our books would have fit into those backpacks you know, to, that the kids carry today. So I wonder oftentimes when you think about accommodations specifically, uh, there were no accommodations for the books that we carried. And when you think about the role that technology plays in the lives of all of us, there's probably not many of us here today that aren't utilizing some form of assistive technology to help us navigate our way through, through life. The Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act legislation, I think, was legislation that was critical in really not only bringing us into the 21st century, but really setting the stage for us moving forward legislatively. This legislation mandates for the Vocational Rehabilitation Program the way that services are being delivered in the vocational rehabilitation system, who those services are actually being delivered to, and how they're being delivered. It also has some other interesting components that are very new for our program nationally. The VR program is, is a program that Congress appropriates approximately $3.1 billion annually to operate. And so as the presidential appointee in this particular role, as commissioner for the Rehabilitation Services Administration, I oversee that budget. But take into, into real serious consideration in terms of that, that enormous amount of money. When you think about how our agency handles that money, most of that money is actually uh, allocated out to the states to operate vocational rehabilitation programs. And there are 80 vocational rehabilitation programs around the United States that are specifically charged with providing vocational rehabilitation services that range from helping individuals to uh, engage in educational uh, training programs, job training programs, programs that help with, uh, with securing independent living skills, economic self-sufficiency, positioning those individuals uh, for orientation and mobility, adjustment training. And the states have a lot of flexibility in terms of how they actually utilize both the combination of federal and state resources to be able to do that. What is unique about, I think, this opportunity when we're talking about the intersection between legislation and really how do we move forward and utilizing that access to both the resources as well as the legislation, we have many key stakeholders that, that play a significant role in what that legislation looks like, uh, who it impacts, uh, who are our actual advocates? You heard from our previous uh, presenter that uh, you may have more partners than you think uh, initially, and, and the impact may be very different depending on who those stakeholders are. And that everyone has a hand in the, in the legislative process. You have Congress in the United States who absolutely is invested and committed to ensuring that our program, the Vocational Rehabilitation Program, first of all grows and moves into the 21st century. You have the employment community uh, in this piece of legislation that we currently have who is, is committed to and would like to demonstrate, I think, a stronger partnership and alliance between our nation's vocational rehabilitation programs and services. Employers have a, 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 
I think, a significant need to understand how they can best interface with individuals with disabilities. They need a talent pool of individuals to meet the in-demand as well as the high-demand labor market uh, needs that they have in the nation's workforce. But they have limited experience in terms of working with the disability community. So this piece of legislation now positions the vocational rehabilitation agencies as well as other key stakeholders and our core partners in this piece of legislation to see employers as their partners. Historically, the vocational rehabilitation programs have always worked with our nation's employers because that's how we were able to get individual, uh, individuals with disabilities jobs in the first place. So we see them as our partners currently. We have a cultural shift. We have uh, uh, economic demands being placed on our country, not just in the United States, but around the world. And one of those demands is really understanding the impact of where our nation's workforce is moving to. We have an aging population. We have individuals that are leaving the nation's workforce. And with that, it means that these individuals are leaving with very important skill sets that are very valuable uh, to the labor workforce. And that we also need to make sure that individuals with disabilities are positioned to understand where the nation's labor market workforce skills are moving towards. This piece of legislation, the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, are really in place now to be able to help identify those labor market skills that are going to be critical for individuals with disabilities to be able to remain marketable and to position themselves for economic self-sufficiency in the future. And in order to do that, we need to understand legislatively the process and some of the uh, economic drivers that are in place at this point in time in order to understand how we can be the most effective as possible in ensuring that we are delivering information, that we're delivering services and supports to the disability community in a way that will position them to be prepared to meet the nation's workforce demands. We know that individuals, particularly with, uh, who are blind and visually impaired, oftentimes have the hardest time and face the uh, most significant barriers when it comes to uh, employment. We know legislatively that there are programs and have been programs in place in order to help individuals who are blind and visually impaired to acquire those skill sets. Uh, the vocational rehabilitation program is one of those programs for uh, individuals with multiple disabilities, but it also has its own unique set of services such as our uh, Randolph Shepherd program or the business enterprise program that the rehabilitation services program is designed to support those individuals who want to reach economic self-sufficiency and receive training in order to be business operators. We also know that uh, literacy and numeracy skills continue to impact individuals with disabilities, and particularly when you think about uh, those of us who are blind and visually impaired, these are a set of skill sets that are absolutely critical for moving forward, particularly for our youth, because this piece of legislation puts a special emphasis now on being able to ensure that individuals who are transition age youth, and we consider that age 14 to 24, 
to be prepared with the necessary skill sets that are going to, in fact, make them marketable. We now have a uh, new set of partners through our workforce development systems and our health and human services programs that are actually now, under this piece of legislation, core partners with the National Vocational Rehabilitation Program because we know that our programs involve individuals with disabilities, regardless of whether they're being served specifically from the vocational rehabilitation program or they're navigating their way through other programs that are offered by our workforce development system or health and human services uh, systems in the United States. This legislation also is important because it also emphasizes not just employment, but it really emphasizes career pathways. And Career pathways mean that individuals with disabilities have the opportunity to really develop those skills that are not going to just lead to, uh, to, to um, early entry points into, into employment, but in fact that individuals are acquiring the specific skill sets that are actually going to result in having a career. The difference being that individuals who are focusing on career pathways have the opportunity to not only develop those skill sets that are going to get them into the employment market, but they will have the opportunity to acquire those skills, train as they go along, grow with those skills, to become leaders, and it's not just entry-level employment. The other significant piece about this piece of legislation is that it focuses on competitive integrated employment. And that is particularly, I think, uh, very important uh, both to the blindness community as well as to the disability community because we know that individuals who are blind and visually impaired, given the skill sets, given the opportunity, given, I think, the awareness and training the job skills that are associated with going through our respective programs, regardless of what program it is, that individuals who are blind or visually impaired absolutely have the ability to not only work but contribute to become leaders and ultimately to become economically self-sufficient when they have those opportunities. And so the challenge sometimes uh, for moving forward with new legislation is that we don't always get what we want. Sounds like the song, right? Can't always get what you want. But I think that there are also areas where there are opportunities. And the fact that we have new core partners in this particular process, when we're thinking about what are those levers that help you as, as you're thinking about ways that you can leverage resources, ways that you can approach your respective uh, leadership in your countries to discuss opportunities, to look at ways that you can innovate uh, that is very different. That there are key stakeholders, as such as legislators, such as uh, provider communities that are providing those services and support, such as family members, individuals with disabilities themselves, uh, the educators in your respective countries. These are all key stakeholders that have an investment in looking at and understanding those various levers. And it is challenging sometimes to really try to align those different perceptions, those different opportunities with each other, particularly as you think about how each one of those communities have worked in the past. 
And so everyone is so used to these different communities of practices working independently of each other. And now we have new legislation that says we need to partner together. We are all partners, that Congress has mandated that we work together, that we look at ways to leverage resources, that we look at how we have aligned our data, how we will collect our data, how the states, given the resources from the Vocational Rehabilitation Program and the nation's workforce development program, will operate. And we are not operating as independent entities any longer. We are still very much separate programs, and that's an important factor to remember because sometimes we hear key buzzwords when you're talking about ways that you can leverage our legislation and influence it. What's important to remember is that for this piece of legislation, we are still operating as an independent program, but we do have partnerships as well. We still very much have our own statutory uh, and uh, legislative regulations and authorities that really require us to still do a, cer a certain set of core services that we are governed by under uh, congressional obligations. So we still have a, a degree of independence and autonomy in our respective programs, but we also now have this collective uh, new set of regulations that we must work under. What's also uh, challenging at times is to remember who we are serving and that it's important to preserve not only the integrity of the program but also remembering that we are doing that because we are meeting the needs and we need to remember that we're meeting the needs of individuals with disabilities and that our original mission is still important both to the disability community as well as, as to us as administrators of the program. And so we don't want to lose sight of that. At the same time, usually when there is, where there is challenge, there's also opportunity. And there, that means that there's opportunity to really think legislatively about how we want to align these regulations. So those of you who may be thinking about ways that you need to change legislation in your country, uh, it, is, it is challenging to be able to do that, to sit down and think about ways that you can benefit uh, each other, ways that you can ultimately benefit the constituencies that you are serving without compromising and losing the mission and the vision of your respective programs. And that can be challenging at times. We have uh, probably the most sweeping reform in our legislative uh, program uh, that we have had in over 15 years. And so th we have a whole new set of regulations. Those of you who may be interested in reading them, I can guarantee you will have a lot of reading to do. Uh, we, we have it available on our website, uh, rsa.ed.gov, if you have an interest in taking a look at it. And you can put a slash W-I-O-A after that, and it will take you to what our legislation looks like in the United States and what it means and, and who it is impacting and what are some of the new regulations required. And these regulations are really designed to really uh, analyze and assess the appropriate types of services and supports that are necessary and to promote 
the continued independence of individuals with disabilities. And I think that it's important to be able to to not lose focus of what the actual mission is of the legislation. And we're not always the driver behind that. There are always points of which when you have new legislation, as you well know, that we're happy with some parts. It takes a lot of advocacy efforts uh, on behalf of stakeholders, individuals with disabilities, as well as uh, people who are administrating the specific programs to be able to negotiate. And that is a very key word when you're talking about intersecting with legislation and, and driving change in programs, whether it's local, national, or international. It's the ability to be an effective negotiator. Uh, and recognizing also that the value of what you come out with at the end may not necessarily be the end because we know that historically and we certainly know that as long as these programs are governed by Congress that there will be opportunities in the future also to drive that change, particularly as you navigate your way through the process because you will see sometimes that there are unintended consequences that occur as a result of those changes and sometimes you don't get a chance to do anything about that because it means sometimes that you've gone beyond what your statutory authority is or, and you don't get a chance to necessarily uh, uh, modify that until a later point in time. But I think what is critical is the fact that our times are driving a very different message, a very different mission. Uh, the fact that we are constrained sometimes by the amount of resources that are available, the disability community alone drives a very strong, compelling message as well, which is very important uh, because, after all, we are the recipients of the services that we receive, so we should be listened to. We are the advocates, our own advocates, and, and we need to ensure that both Congress as well as other key stakeholders that run our programs programs are there at the table with us and are hearing what is important to us as well. So I think the message that I would conclude with is that while it's important to intersect with legislation and to ensure that you're out there effectively advocating, it's also equally important to take the opportunity to assess what is happening in other countries as well and how do you how can you bring back to your respective countries, legislation that has moved forward in other countries. You may not be at the same point where we are in the United States, or we may not be at the same point where you are in your respective countries. However, there is always something very valuable within wherever that position may be to take away from that legislation lessons learned and new opportunities to really effectively focus your mission and your vision for the work that you are doing in your respective countries, which is incredibly important. And again, I want to just commend you for that. I think that we all have a great opportunity to continue learning from each other and to continue learning from the communities that we all serve and, and don't give up. It is frustrating sometimes, but there is progress and any movement, any source of change, has never been effective without that kind of challenge. Uh, and remember that there's always opportunity whenever there is challenge as well. 
So again, I want to thank you for inviting me here today and hope that you have a very, very successful assembly. Gracias, señora Janet, por venir. Thank you, Ms. Janet, for coming and sharing uh, your experience with us, the, the leaders of the world uh, Blind Association, and for accepting the time to share with us. At this moment, let us listen another experience from Tanzania. Member of the Parliament of Tanzania, who will share his experience with us. Thank you very much. Um, I thank WBU to invite me uh, to speak on this uh, very important subject matter on influencing public policy for the inclusion of blind and partially sighted persons. Public policy can generally be defined as a system of laws, regulatory measures, causes of actions, and laws, and funding priorities concerning a given um, topic promulgated by a governmental entity or its representatives. It provides an agreed set of guidelines on what government does or does not do about a problem that comes before them for consideration and possible action. Public, pub, public policy is made in response to some sort of issues or problems that requires attention. It, it is oriented towards a goal or a desired solution of problem. It would usually be developed through a process which arises out of such an identified societal problem. In a given democracy, one key characteristic of modern public policy development is public participation. In this case, the problem addressed by a particular policy will have been identified through a consultative process and solution will be addressed upon within the confines of economic, social, political, and political possibilities in a given state. Amongst the intricacies of public policy development is the determinants of such an economic, social, and political possibilities are set by the strong in the society. Democracy tends to favor the majority 
to it emphasizes on the problems which experience by the point of view of the majority this is especially the case since <coughs> policy is developed by representative of the or on behalf of the public even where public has been given an opportunity to participate in the policy development the ultimate role of policy formulation lies with the government which will represent or be presented by a small group of people thus where some of the groups or part of the communities are marginalized and ignored as being productive or of much consequences in the political arena their problems will usually not find place in public policy development rationale for public policy influence for the inclusion of blind and partially sighted persons persons with disabilities in general and blind and partially sighted persons in particular in history had not find place in public participation they were left out both the policy formulation and the policy consideration however the era of building human rights concerns in modern democracy ushered in a revolution which has brought about a remarkable departure from the past this is evidence through the long journey of the united nations in this endeavor from the 1971 declaration of the rights of the mentally handicapped the 1975 declaration on the rights of persons with disabilities the 1983 world program of action on disability the 1993 standard rules on equalization of opportunities to persons with disabilities and more recently the UN convention on the rights of persons with disabilities CRPD these instruments have come about as a result of efforts of organizations and parents of parents and organizations of persons with disabilities these instruments have become a basis for policy formulation in many un member states around such areas of 
concern such as education, health, rehabilitation, training, employment, political participation, adequate standards of living, etc. The convention is particularly emphasis have been fact that the principles of equal rights implies the needs of each and every individual are of equal importance that such needs should be made the basis for the planning of society and that all resources should be exploited or employed in such, way, in such a way that every individual has equal opportunity for inclusion and participation. Although there has been a remarkable enthusiasm in the convention as has been ratified by 166 UN member states at the time of preparing this presentation, different member states are at different uh, levels of translating its provision into uh, acceptable and workable policies. Many of states have ratified and then put the document in their shelves. Even where policies have been developed and some implementation taken place, there has been doubt, there has been many problems in our communities that need to be resolved. Although some problems may readily be dealt with, actions taken in the private sector, the CRPD and families or by our civil society um, social, economic, political, or religious associations or organizations, policy influence focus should at all times uh, remain the government. This is through our advocacy as organizations of blind and partially sighted persons and those of other disability is most needed. We also need to build alliances with like-minded organizations or groups to, be, to bring about impact in our work. Advocacy in influencing public policy. As a community of blind and partially sighted persons, we have in our advocacy to bear in mind that public policy problems are those of 
much need addressed by laws and regulations adapted by our government. Our key target for advocacy is therefore the government. There are many other stakeholders though whom we have to either at least or in our advocacy work or to be to bear in mind as we go about our advocacy endeavors. Our first ta- task is to firmly establish that the problem we want to work on is in fact one which requires government involvement and reach a solution. Many those of those outlined in the CRPD will follow in this category. We also have to bear in mind that policy making is part of an ongoing process that does not always have a clear beginning or end since decisions about will benefit from who will benefit from the, or who will bear any burden in the policy are continuously uh, reassessed, revisited, and revised. We should aim to shape public policy through multiplicity of approaches, ensuring mobilization of uh, similar interests groups but out, which are outlined shaping public policy will be different from state to state but it is reasonably assumed that the process uh, always involve efforts by competing interests agreed to influence policy makers in their favor. Public policy is a complex and multifaceted process. It involves the interplay of many parties. This includes many interest groups and individuals competing and collaborating to influence policy makers to act in particular way and or in a variety of policies. The individuals and groups use numerous tactics to advance their interests. Here, the fact 
can be lobbying, advocating for their positions in the, in the policy, attempting to educate supporters and opponents, and mobilizing alliances on a particular issue. These are skills we should not only perfect in advocacy campaign, as this and as blind and partially sighted um, advocates, we should not only initiate our own endeavors, but also to seek our place in the advocacy work carried out by other groups with similar needs, like the women and the youth. Perfect policies rarely emerge from the political process. Given the fact that policy influence has to do with competing for available resources, most often policy outcomes involve compromises amongst interest groups or parties. When groups consider which policy to support and advocate for, consideration include what is the, their best interest, that is, which policy could help them or could help the group achieve the greatest, uh, the greatest benefit. Equity is another consideration is that policy uh, is that policy fair are the benefits from the policy equitable distributed and are the costs of the policy shared fairly other consideration include the policies political feasibility, whether a majority of other will support the policy, and also how cost-effective and efficient the policy would achieve, would be in achieving the desired outcome. The majority aspect a major aspect of the public policy is law. In many states, the CRPD has been uh, domesticated into laws. In general sense, the law includes specific legislation and more broadly define provisions of constitutional or international law. 
there are many ways that the law can influence how persons with disabilities are treated and the type of services they receive. Likewise, legislation identifies areas of which research grants can be funded and often determines the amount of funding allocated. Thus, it is not surprising that public policy debates occur over proposed legislation and funding. As a movement of persons with visual impairment, we should no longer be shy as we seek to wrestle the now well-documented rights, the CRPD. In CRPD, we should assert ourselves on the discussion table with other groups like women and the youth and where necessary make alliances, alliances with them in the struggle for our rights or equal standing equal standing with them. We should take the lead or we should take the cue from the fact that international disability movement of which we are part of plan a most vital role towards the development and promulgation of the CRPD, the convention is therefore a product of the movement at the level of this is the road we have to embark on and which we should not abandon. We should also realize that the international movement put the treaty into the doors of the national movement to push and its implementation and monitoring at national, community, and grassroots level. There is therefore great need for a strong disability movement at the international, regional, and national levels to continue advocacy in all aspects of life in favor of the blind and partially sighted persons and to influence policies at all these different levels. Such a movement should also be capable 
of planning and role of a watchdog to and to implement or the implementation of favorable policies specifically to the blind and partially sighted persons. Besides continuing efforts on influencing policy around the provisions of the CRPD, there are two other processes which have emerged after the CRPD on which advocacy efforts should never be faulted. The first is the um, is the just adapted uh, development uh, sustainable development goals 2015-2030 and advocacy our advocacy should target at all levels to different levels of our society the aim here is to ensure that we are not left out in the implementation and we are taking our role in monitoring of the framework to establish us or to enable us live a fulfilling life and live in the world we want. The second is the Marrakesh Treaty, which aims at curbing the global book farming that over 285 million print disabled have been farming. This treaty has just or has recently come into force. Uh, by the submission of the 20th ratification. Unlike the CRPD, the, we are, as blind and partially sad persons, must be the main driving force uh, to this effect or to this uh, ratification and implementation of the Mar Marrakesh Treaty because it affects us more than other disability organizations. And we are the initiators of this treaty. So we have to take the lead to ensure it is implemented and it is uh, working towards the ending of book farming to our blind and sighted uh, public. In conclusion, public policy Public policies are influenced, influenced by a variety of uh, factors, external, which we need to be aware of. Our rights, our advocacy, or in our all day-by-day -day work. These factors include public opinion, economic conditions, new scientific discoveries, 
technological change and different interest groups. As, 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 as a result of this wide variety of influencing factors, we tended to pull and push policy in different directions, public or policy change often happens slowly. Absent or crisis and sometimes uh, even during a crisis, the influencing factors can, re can tend to check and counteract each other. Slowly, the development and implementation of a new policy and uh, ending the leading to incremental of uh, less than the uh, radical changes in public policy and interest and influencing agents around more effective in blocking policy change than in having new policy adapted. Given the importance of public policy influence in addressing the needs of communities of blind and partially sighted persons, we should not rest, we should as organizations of blind and partially sighted persons should take the lead to ensure we have equal opportunities in making the policy inclusive to all of us. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Elimasha, for coming over here and to share your experience with us, which is extremely important. And um, before the next speaker, uh, we have a period of where President uh, Holding, uh, he has a message that is important, and he's going to share it with us, and I hope that all of you would listen. And then we're going to have Aubrey Webson for this, to this for the microphone. And excuse me, Aubrey, I have to interrupt. But um, it has uh, happened some, something I, I have to inform the House about before we are starting the voting. Earlier today, it was informed that uh, Mohamed Azawi had withdrawn his uh, candidature. I have now been informed that that is not correct information, and I think I have to. I, I think I have to inform the House about this. Um, my suggestion will be that we are moving forward with the process. His uh, ballot is in the package. It's not taken out, so if someone wants to vote for him, it's possible. And I, I, will, I will suggest that we are moving forward with the process and start voting uh, as, as we have planned. Thank you. Gracias, señor presidente. Thank you, Mr. President. I think it's important uh, to receive your message for all of us, especially uh, for our delegates here from the different countries. And at this time, then, 
the last speaker, who is uh, very important as well, is going to be able to speak with us, Aubrey Webson, who is the ambassador... an extraordinary ambassador and penitentiary for the permanent mission of Antigua and Barbuda with the United Nations. And he has a great deal of experience in everything that we're talking about here. And he's going to share with us his experience. Welcome, Aubrey Webson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. President and the members of the organizing committee for inviting me back or inviting me to be um, on this panel. Friends, colleagues, it's good to be back. It's like coming home. It's good to be here. Thank you. Before I, I, got, I, I got up to speak, um, when I came on the platform, I asked the young lady, what position am I speaking? She said, you would be last. I said, good. I think it's not so good. <laughs> now that I have heard everybody else, they basically said what I have written. So obviously it's not good. I will try not to repeat too much and try not to therefore bore you, but I will try to use my speech to emphasize some of the things that you have already heard, but in a different way. When I was given the topic, I asked myself several questions. How is policy developed? How do we implement these? How do we influence these? And the key word for me is influence. You see, I have a theory. When I started working in the field and I traveled around, and I, in my own observation, this is not a scientific analysis at all, but in my own observation, I came to the conclusion that in a lot of places, Organizations, non-government organizations like ours and so on, very much reflected the behavior of the government. So if you had a dictatorial government, within the organization you had dictatorial leadership, and they made policies. So they then drove how things were represented. And I found that these organizations' behaviors tended to drive policy in the same way and their governments drove policies. But that has changed a lot around the world as democracy, new forms of democracy, has taken hold. 25 years ago or so, democracy was based on a sort of winner-take-all. Um, you voted and the smaller group made the policy for everybody and the reflection of how policy was made was based on a winner-take-all mannerism. That has changed too. Today we tend to work with two competing practices. Something that has come to be called bottom-up practices where it is participatory. Where 
a lot of people make decisions based on meetings, organizations, as they say, town hall meetings, the politicians call them. And you get, you have those, these meetings and they lead upwards and decisions are then made by the larger group or the managing group because it has had the involvement of others. The second and yet more popular practice and the one that most people seem to be subscribing to, the one that is practiced within the United Nations quite often is consensus building. Consensus building for policy is much more broadly and inclusive, but much more painful. It's much more painful because it's a longer process. It seeks to involve everybody. It seeks to get the best from everyone, but more importantly, it asks for compromise. It's asks us where we have to, in building consensus, even at times, give up something that we hold dear. It's about negotiating. It's about understanding. It's about compromising and bringing everybody in. So the policy practice that seems to be the one that is leading the democratic process as we stand here is about inclusion. Inclusivity, the inclusion of everybody. And therefore, it, 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 it involves painstaking. I myself, since I have become involved in some of the broader general international policy, recognize the painstaking involvement of negotiating policies and including everybody. I have been fortunate in the last year or so to be involved in three major international policy discussions. The financing for development. I recall this time of the year, last year, and I stop and smile to myself because I think this exact time last year on a Sunday morning like this, I was in a, in a conference room talking about policy. So here I am again. Is that deja vu or what? But it is that you have to be, you, you give a lot of, of, of time in order to get things across. I saw the same practice in December in the climate change discussion where we burnt the night oil and spent evenings, nights, all day. So a new era of broad discussion is upon us, and that's where we have to get involved. Our organizations were very active, very successfully active, in the 80s and 90s. We were major players in advocacy and activism. I suggest to you that the era of the type of activism that we did in the 80s, 90s, and even the early part of this century is done. And we have to come up with new strategies. Not that there isn't a lot more advocacy to do. No, there surely is. But the strategy now has to be different. 
The activism in the 80s and 90s led to some significant successes. CRPD, the Marrakesh Agreement, and I stop to congratulate the WBU on, on, in the success of bringing Marrakesh alive. I feel very honored to, to have had a small part, but more importantly, to have been associated with the colleagues who drove that. Congratulations again, and thank you for your work. <laughs> Similarly, the CRPD and the role we, all, we played as a, as, a, as, a, as a movement. Similarly, the Education for All strategies and many of the other international treaties and agreements that was mentioned so ably by Ellie Macha in her presentation. So we know that the role for activism was successful. So we now have to ask ourselves, what is the new strategy for policy development? So I suggest that we have to think now more broadly about inclusion. How do we broaden our base? How do we become a lot more inclusive? Because the new mantra is about leaving no one behind. How do we bring that alive? How do we then find our space and our place in this new era of inclusive services and inclusive development. It is for me very important that we answer that question because policy is driven by changes in society. Policy is not as driven by so new social behavior, new cultural practices. Policy is driven by society. And we have to be part of that as it changes around us. It is important then that we do, from, from my position, that we do two things. One, that we step out of our box and comfort zone. That we no longer simply speak to ourselves and send representatives up, but that we find our place and insert ourselves widely. I was very pleased a few weeks ago when Ana Perez stepped out of the box and said to me, as um, speaking about her seeking to be a nominee in the committee that deals with the discrimination against women. Because what that said is that here is, this is a new role. No longer is it just about CRPD. It is now about getting the implementation of the practices so that we can influence other things and not just influence things that specifically address our need. I was particularly pleased that although, although Anna did not win, she broke and shattered and created a new glass ceiling. 
Because it means that, and I know this because I heard people speak after, by the way, she, she lost by one vote. And what it meant, though, is that people were saying, people began to say, yes, persons with disability can be nominated. And not nominated for their own so-called thing, like CRPD, but for something that is inclusive and it addresses everybody. We are only going to bring change about and influence new policy if we are in the place to do so. And to do so, it means we have to step outside of the box and outside of our own comfort zone. I felt that the, the second thing is, as I said, inclusion. We must, we must find our place on, 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 on all committees. We must also bear responsibility at when we get onto committees. I must, as an example, speak of the CRPD committee. Because we have the responsibility, if we are going to bring the true message of an influence change, we must be ourselves practicing what that change must be. And let me tell you a little story about the CRPD for those who weren't there. CRPD committee is that committee of 18 or so people, I think, who deals with governance and monitoring the practices of the implementation of that international treaty by, not, by, by states, by nation states. It's comprised, it should be an inclusive committee of all per, different persons with disability, men, women, and so on. On that committee, we, there are quite a few blind persons, I think, in the disability group, the largest number are blind people. All men. So it says something is wrong. Because we can't be talking about we want change and amongst ourselves, we have left out women and we, don't, we are not the change we want to be. So, so we have a responsibility to reflect that change even amongst our own organization. The most, the most, the, 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 the most unequal group on our committee in the United Nations is the Committee of People with Disability. Now, that has to say something. So if we're speaking of change, we have to live that change. If you want to influence policy, you have to be part of that. You have to live it. And therefore, you have a responsibility to bring about and help to bring about the, the, the change you want. And, and, and that has to be in the practice of the things you do. I want to conclude with um, two, main, two small things. Firstly, I want, to, I want to say that as members of the World Blind Union, as we move into this new era, the new era and the international 
market is about the 2015 agenda, which was referenced again by Ellie. And this new era speaks of um, leaving no one behind. For that to happen, we, persons with disability, persons who are blind, have a response. We have to begin to ask ourselves, where are the places we need to insert ourselves and find our space? We have to ask ourselves and find those places. We have to be on committees. We have to be on, at, at the national level. We have to be very active in national broad-based activities. It's not just now the advocates in terms of the movement. It has to be being seated at the table. What we did in the 1980s and 90s when we said no, nothing for us without us must now be truly practiced. Not practiced by simply saying it, but we now have to go and sit at the table and be part of the negotiations, be part of the birth of the discussion. Because the practice in societies, we have to see what's, what are those changes in societies that are going to create new policies. What are government responding to? What is the organization responding to? And be part of that. It is that involvement, deep-seated, direct, I like to say deliberate involvement, that is going to be the way we are going to influence change, that we are going to influence policy. Finally, I want to make a recommendation. I want to leave you with a very small recommendation. Many of us have been fortunate in the last few years due to the hard work of other colleagues, some of whom are in this room, who, have, who were great activists and so on. So we now have a few of us who are in government or in the UN or in some position of policy. I wonder if it would not be an, 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 an interesting idea that when you have an event like this, that we try to, that we do some work and try to ide identify the numbers of persons who are blind, who are involved in influential policy positions within government or international bodies, and maybe see if we could bring them together and gather them in one room and help them to think about how their, pos their position of, of power might help the broader good, the commons, you know. When you get into the position of power, it's not for you, it's about the commons. So how would you, bringing this group of people together, how, so that they can understand what is going on? I know friends of mine who are in leadership positions who are not necessarily part of this body, but would be very happy to sit down in a room with other policymakers who are blind to begin to see how we as a group can make strategies so that together 
internationally, we can all understand what we are trying to do together so that we can bring about and influence international change for persons with disabilities. Mr. Chairman, Mr. President, colleagues, again, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Abin, uh, for to be able to come here and share with us those very important uh, reflections with all of us. And I believe that uh, we're going to be able to take that to our own homes and we're going to be continuing this uh, very important work which is um, affecting the political policies and the political policies. And before we finish up the morning, we have some notices which are important for the organization. And Stephanie is going to be able to give us this information. Um, the president of the AFUB Southern Region would like the delegates to assemble in the assembly hall at 1.30 p.m. this afternoon. Again, AFUB Southern delegates. Please assemble in this hall at 1.30 today. Um, anyone who has not received their voting materials can pick them up in room 244. Again, if you have not received your voting materials, please head to room 244 to pick those up. And finally, following this afternoon's tea break, please come back to this room for the announcement of the, the election results. Um, before heading back to your regional meetings. Regional meetings will begin at 2.30 2 this afternoon. Following the 4 p.m. tea break, please come back to this room for the announcement of the election results. Thank you. Thank you very much for those housekeeping announcements. I would like now to thank our presenters Mr. Gordon, Mrs. Eddie Markham, Mrs. Janet, and Mr. Arvin Webson. I hope that all of you have been able to grasp so much knowledge and we have much material to ponder and to work in our country. Thank you for the president of this table for his announcement. I think that the attitude of inviting several people of different regions is also quite significant. To allow several people of several parts of the world can put their grain of salt for the success of this Congress. Thank you for the invitation and now Ciao. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we're just waiting for a portable microphone uh, because what I intend to do, um, we will, at the beginning of this meeting, we will have a roll call so that we know who is there. Uh, but to start with, I'd like to introduce myself for those who might not recognize me from my voice. I'm Wolfgang Angermann. I am the president of the European Blind Union, and I, I'm really happy to welcome you to this meeting of our region, we will take the possibility to talk about some issues we have uh, provided with an agenda. In fact, our executive director, Mokran Boussaid, who is on the stage right here, beside me on my right side, has prepared an agenda which we will make use of.
I'm still waiting for the feedback on the portable microphone, whether we have one. But before that, I can uh, quickly go through the draft agenda. Uh, we have the opening and welcome, which we are about to do right now. Okay, can you, can you please try to move to each other as close as possible? Because we only have one microphone to, to take around. And if we have to move through the whole room, it might take too long until we can hand the microphone to those who like to speak. So please try to move close to each other in the front part of this room. Don't care for the countries listed on the table. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And those people, when we when you have our discussion afterwards, please let's do it as we know it from the WBU meeting. You stand up, show up your hand so that we can hand you the microphone and then please give your name and country where you come from so that everybody knows who's talking. But we will start with a roll call. So the microphone will now be passed around from one to each other and please give your name and the country you come from so that we know who's there. Elaine Howley, Ireland. Des Kenny, Ireland. De Timo Kuoppala, Finland. Uh, Paul Lüneborg from Denmark, HML. Mm -hmm. Barra Martin, Spain. Anna Wojnaczymańska, Poland. Sigthor Hartfresson, Iceland. Maria Kaisa Mattiasson, Iceland. Rudolf Lenik, the Czech lands. Sinanta Fai from Albania. Marang Lenverli from Albania. John Heilbrunn, Denmark. Diana Steenshoft, Denmark. Torkel Olsen from the now new Olympic champions in handball, Denmark. <laughs> Douglas Gilroy, UK. June Best, UK. Gareth Davis, UK. Eleanor Southwood, UK. Marcus Wolf, Austria. Stefano Prea, Moldova. Singita Sarmana, Slovenia. Can you, can you just repeat what's so a little bit low? Slovenia. <laughs> I am Nenad Radenkovic from Union of the Blind of Serbia. Mm -hmm. 
Andreas Bethke, Germany. Jessica Schröder, Germany. Dieter Feser, Stuttgart, Germany. Thor Tislum, Norway. Unne Jönner Hagen, Norway. Anne Johnson, Sweden. Håkan Thomson, Sweden. Elvira Kiwi, Sweden. So that's all? Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Anybody missing? Uh, French people? Hmm? Um, ah. Edouard and Chantal. Les gens de, de France? Oui, ils viennent d'arriver. Ah. <laughs> yeah, Ferrero and Edouard. Okay, there's two people from France too. Edouard Ferrero, France. Chantal Le Soliec, France. Merci. Well, this is, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a very good number of people still here. Uh, the list of attendees I had before was much shorter. So I'm very happy that there are so many people who have come to this regional meeting. Wonderful. Um, so I welcome you most cordially to this meeting. And uh, let me introduce the draft agenda, which, I, as I have already pointed out, has been drafted by our executive director. Uh, the next point, whoops, there is something with the mic. No, it's working. The next point is uh, matters arising from the 9th W Assembly, uh, if any. <laughs> the fourth point would be the national developments delegates would like to share, which will be a possibility to exchange information with each other and have some discussion on that. And we have the uh, next point, which will be an introduction. Uh, we expect Mr. Jose Viara, who is the new human rights advisor for WBU, and he will take the opportunity to introduce himself and his new task to us. Then the next point will be EBU's internal communication strategy, and especially how to overcome the language barrier, which is really a very, very serious point. And then last but not least, of course, any other business. And finally, the close of the meeting. We have, uh, originally, we have set out the time from half past two to four o'clock for this meeting. We will uh, use this time, and if we see that we need more time for discussion, for example, we will certainly uh, give you and us the chance to meet after the coffee break or the tea break, as we usually uh, pointed out now, that after the tea break to continue. But let's see how far we get until 4 o'clock. Are there any requests to amend or uh, uh, to amend the, uh, to, to the agenda or uh, add anything to it? This is not the case, so this draft agenda is accepted as the valid agenda for this meeting.
So the first point right here is matters arising from the 9th WU uh, General Assembly in Bangkok, if any. Um, I didn't note any of such points. Uh, is anybody who would think of that, that there is something which we should take up right here in order to um, revitalize this point from the previous assembly? Okay, this is, this is not the case. So then we come to the next point, which certainly will be much more vivid and will take hopefully much more time. It's an exchange about na national developments you would like to share. Now I would uh, open the floor, give some, to get some information, maybe um, you would like to start, somebody would like to start to give latest developments in terms of special developments. For example, what is the attitude of the respective government of your country towards the Marrakesh Treaty? How do you deal with the issue of silent cars? What is the advantage of your legislation in terms of people with disabilities? Did you achieve any success there? And things like that. So that's just some key words I'd like to throw into this discussion. Who would like to start? Just show up. Stand up, show up your hand, and you will get the portable microphone. Wolfgang uh, Kenny Ireland. Okay, you have the floor. Can I start with the Marrakesh Treaty? You can. Um, only some three weeks ago, the Irish minister responsible for copyright law brought forward heads of a bill to change Irish copyright law. There are good 60 changes to be made in Irish copyright law. It's not just about Marrakesh, there are lots of things that will have to be changed in national copyright law, and the general, our um, Attorney General is currently going through the heads of the bill. It will not admit us to the Marrakesh Treaty. The Irish government is waiting for a decision from Brussels as to the competency on who's going to sign the uh, Marrakesh Treaty. But we would hope that and we will watch it carefully, that the passage of legislation through the Irish Parliament will not be impeded by some of the reservations which were advanced at various stages by the copyright holders in some way to frustrate, impede, or weaken the Irish copy, our, our weaken copyright law within the Marrakesh Treaty. So I think it's looking uh, to be favourable that at this particular juncture, Ireland is ready to bring forward legislation which the Minister assures us is towards a ratification of the Marrakesh Treaty and is also preparing Ireland's position to ratify the UNCPRD by the end of the year. Thank you very much. Next speaker. Do we have one? Hello, uh, Germany speaking. 
Uh, we just wanted to share that uh, EBU will attend a meeting in September of a GRB uh, referring to silent cars, the GRB noise party who is responsible for uh, approving uh, any uh, substantial changes in the UNECE regulation regarding an AVA system, so an alert warning system for silent cars, so for electric and electric hybrid cars. And last week a proposal was published by the government of Japan, which is really great, and they are, this proposal intends to prohibit the pause switch. So they have put it on the table, and in September it is up to GRB to approve this proposal. And then later on, five months later, or a half year later in March, the WP29, which is the supreme body of approving all vehicle regulations, will, I guess, uh, approve this proposal so that it can be adopted as an amendment into the UNECE regulation, which is good news, but on the other hand, we have to be very vigilant that the European Commission will also embed this proposal into the EU regulation on silent cars. Because I have seen another proposal from the European Commission which intends to adopt the regulation, the specifications of that regulation, UNEC regulation, but still the regulation is, is it in the current stage. This would still mean that a pause switch would be optional. So the last months for us, if the regulation will be approved in September, is on us to keep a very close eye on what the European Commission is doing and that they really will adopt also the latest changes and the latest amendments of the UNECE regulation so that the pause switch will be prohibited not only in out of the EU, and rather in the EU and in all member countries of the world who are adhered to that regulation. Thank you. Any other? Thank you. Thank you. Can I have the floor? You have. Torkel Olesen from the Danish Association of the Blind. Um, I would like to share two things with you. One is um, a new uh, development in the postal system in Denmark. And I just want to say that in Denmark we uh, have had a quite uh, efficient, we think, uh, postal uh, system. But now, due to uh, uh, reducing uh, economy, economical costs, they have changed the, the, uh, the, the postal system. Now a letter can be uh, up to five days on the ways. Uh, that means that it takes the same time, amount of time to bring a letter out now in 2016 as, in, as it did in 1648. So now we are quite a, a little bit back once again in Denmark. The problem is, of course, that uh, the um, matters for the blind, the uh, our uh, what is it called uh, news, well, local news, will uh, uh, who is sent out uh, in Daisy format, will also be five days older when it, it comes to, out to the blind persons who is receiving them locally. So. Um, 
old news will be the, uh, the way forward for older, uh, elderly, blind and partly sighted people in Denmark who is not using the uh, internet. So we are, uh, we are not very, uh, very fond of that, uh, to say it mildly. A second problem I would like to ask you, uh, not necessarily here, but if you have any, any experience in this field, we would like to hear from you. There's a new regulation uh, coming into force in Denmark, making it possible for uh, bicycles to ride uh, the red light uh, and turn right, uh, even though the, red is light, uh, the light is red uh, in the crossings. I would like to know if anybody else have experiences in that, because we think it could be very dangerous for blind people uh, when you are crossing uh, when you're crossing the street and you're supposing that, uh, that you are uh, allowed to go and then suddenly a bike can come running you over. So if you have any experience, I would like to hear from you during uh, the, not necessarily here in, in public, but if you can have experiences, if it is that dangerous that we think we would like to know about it and perhaps what you do to prevent uh, blind people getting run down by bicycles. Uh, Thank you. One question, are, are there any regulations for those people who drive so, bikes in terms of, uh, of behavior when they are confronted with pedestrians who want to cross the street? Well, I think in general, and it's this, I'm just, now I'm generalis generalizing uh, grossly, I think, but I think that bikers are quite ruthless uh, traffickers. Uh, uh, in general, so uh, in Denmark at least we have a lot of problems with uh, bikers uh, and they have of course to observe uh, the, the, who's trying to cross the road but uh, I think that uh, I, I know who's the, the weaker part in that, uh, uh, in that conflict. It will always be us. So we are, we are depending on the, their um, good uh, will uh, in, in not running us down, but I think some problems will occur from this. Thank you. Not the best news, but anyway. <laughs> Any other? Yes. <clears throat> it's Håkan Thomson from Sweden. I can give a short report. Um, uh, every summer in Sweden we have um, something called... Uh, Almedalsveckan, it's a week, uh, uh, a week event there um, politicians and uh, journalists and, uh, and uh, non-profit organizations meet and it's very big and, and um, um, it's uh, uh, all, all important persons are there and, and uh, it's about uh, two or three thousand seminars during the week and so on. And uh, of course, uh, SRF, the Swedish Association of Visually Impaired, was there. And uh, uh, we uh, met a responsible minister um, uh, from the Swedish government uh, um, dealing with the Marrakesh Treaty. And... Um, uh, he gave no promises, but uh, we we had a short talk to him. It was me and Ann Jönsson. And um, uh, uh, he is... Um, 
Yeah, he, he made no comments, but, uh, but uh, when we left him, uh, he said, okay, Marrakech Treaty. So I, I suppose he, he noticed what we wanted anyway. Uh, then uh, uh, also we had a uh, own seminar, SRF arranged an own seminar uh, about uh, the silent cars. And we have a very high quality panel in that seminar. It was... Uh, 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 it was the um, uh, general manager for the uh, responsible authority about uh, these matters. And uh, it was a um, uh, traffic organization and also a, a green car organization, which uh, uh, used to be very positive to silent cars. And um, uh, also a politician, and I t took part myself. And also we had a, a partisan, participant from the industry. And we had a very good uh, discussion during one hour. And I hope they um, got some more knowledge about why we are uh, wanting this um, um, of us and so on. So I think that seminar was very useful for for awesome for them. And uh, last year, just before the, the Geneva event about silent cars, we met uh, the Swedish representative for the uh, authority and um, he, um, he is also aware what we are thinking. And, and um, uh, so I, I, I have good hope that Sweden will act in a good way in, in this new meeting in Geneva uh, in September. Uh, last of all, I also can tell you we, um, SRF, made a small research about attitude, attitudes uh, among uh, employers and uh, uh, attitudes to, to blind and partially sighted people. And that was not a, a nice reading. It uh, is obvious that. Um, employers' attitudes are a, a big problem when you try to get employed as a blind or partially sighted persons, person in Sweden. So um, we will use these figures to, to argue and um, to spread uh, information uh, to, uh, about um, uh, our capacity and so on. So and this this um, small research will will be useful for us to 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 use to to try to change those bad attitudes yes please. thank you very much next contribution it's marcus from austria thank you um I can quickly just say that uh, we have um, adapted our legislation for the Marrakesh Treaty to be put into place in Austria. We've done basically everything to get started once the international exchange of books uh, can be done, so to speak, when um, Austria also... Uh, Austria has not... Well, of course, no, no European country has ratified, and, 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 and but, but once that is in place, our legislation will already be uh, suitable for that. That's the one good point. Um, the other one, um, I can just say we've got the same problem as Denmark uh, with, with the postal system. 
uh, more and more postal, uh, let's say, package um, receipt centers are becoming electronically equipped and um, a blind person cannot independently access those machines. We're working at that. We're trying to get our postal system to adapt these systems, but um, we're facing an uphill battle on that one. It's, um, it's, something, it's something where uh, we're running in circles, actually. They are telling us it's the, it's the machine producers. They are telling us it's... Um, I don't know. It's one person blaming the other, and, 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 and uh, we're trying to find a solution. So if anyone knows the solution, a software package that can be put into the thing or any adaptation, we're happy to hear from you. Thank you. And You're talking about those, uh, those um, uh, cabins or things where you can grab your, the package which has been laid down there? Are you talking about that? Yes. Okay. Yes. And they are, if you come after regular hours, there aren't any, uh, there aren't any persons to assist you. Mm. And you can't do that independently as a blind yeah. or partially sighted person. And then the third point also mentioned by uh, Denmark, I think it was the um, traffic situation of um, being allowed to um, turn right when the, when, the, when the traffic light is red. This... Um, This is an issue that has been, um, which we have struck down in, in Austria at least 20 times over the last 20 years. Um, it comes every summer. Some ridiculous politician always comes up with this um, proposal, and we've got a committee for road safety. It's called, in, in German, it's the Kuratorium für Verkehrssicherheit. And thank goodness there are uh, knowledgeable uh, Experts who always manage to convince them on a factual basis that this is n totally nonsensical. It would do no good at all to to uh, to traffic. It would only increase um, well the, the 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 risk. So I hope this I hope this is not coming in through the back door through any other country and then <laughs> making its way through Europe. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, this is this is um, a little bit uh, comparable, uh, comparable um, philosophy as you have it with the share, share space uh, situation. You know, this is to share the traffic light between pedestrians and uh, and cyclists and uh, drivers of motor cars as it's possible, and uh, they try to do it in that way. We have that in Germany too. Other comments, other contributions. Oui. Edouard Ferrero pour la France. Je voulais vous faire part d'un certain nombre d'informations qui peuvent intéresser. Dans le domaine, par rapport au traité de Marrakech, la, la loi française qui a été votée dernièrement. Do we have a simultaneous translation for that here? I, I'm not sure. We have? No, no, we don't have. Yes, we do. We have? Oh, okay. When it comes to the Treaty of Marrakech, France just adopted a law. Oh, oh my. 
which is very uh, interesting. Interesting, uh, as the uh, speaker said before, we are ready to adopt when the decision will be taken at the European level. Another uh, law important for us, uh, where we act, we acted quite a bit. We were quite uh, quite uh, busy. We it was for the uh, digital um, the law the law on digital. It is very important for us. It's the access to information. It is the access to uh, jobs. So we have we had a law that was really uh, really complicated. This is a law that was not interesting. We uh, have made the changes, and this law will be adopted uh, in September. So we have obtained two points. First, an article regarding the people who are deaf. The uh, the the manufacturers of telephone portal. Portable phone, portable phone, have made a, available a platform for everyone. We have also a concern for the uh, the the blind. We have obtained that there is a platform on the internet for all the administration in France. We have obtained that the structures, the people who f uh, provide public services shall be available within a few years. This law in France, is, it's, a big, it's a big conflict. In the, uh, there are article about access which will be applied in the uh, private sector. Merci beaucoup. Any comment on that or any? Gracias. Soy Sinanda Fah de Albania. Escuchando a vosotros de los problemas que habéis presentado, a mí me daba vergüenza y tenía dudo que si debía hablar o no, porque mis problemas que quiero presentar son graves y nosotros de momento ni podemos pensar lo que... We cannot even think about what we have been presenting. And uh, so... I decided to speak because uh, we have great problems, and I hope that some of you can give give us some suggestions about how, how to we can solve these problems that we have. And uh, in the first place, I would like to I would like to say to all of you that the government uh, policy from the Albanese government has damaged the principle, the world principle, of nothing for us and without us. And uh, they have damaged that legally, and uh, and so they have enacted laws that are not compatible with the agreement. Furthermore, the CRPD uh, has been translated wrong in the art in Article 29th in the last paragraph, where it is is written there that the people who have disabilities can be presented through organizations of. Uh, disabled people, but the translation is actually backwards. It says they're presented by organizations because they are disabled. So the same thing happened in the Article 32, and it says that this base that has been translated backwards, uh, they have used a, a law and they have, or they have known the legal right of the organizations 
that have uh, disabilities so they can offer services and they protect our services, and not just for people who have disabilities, but also for their families. And in another area, the organizations... Uh, disability organizations, they have a, a very, very lengthy definition, a very empirical and very theoretical, that it has nothing to do that doesn't give a possibility for them to behave as lawyers or representatives. And on the other hand, the, during this period of two years, the government has uh, basically uh, eaten up all these organizations that have disabilities and they have only been working with organizations that are for a disability and the movement of the organizations that have disabilities is really low and in this moment that the, the government has started to do a reform with this reform they're reducing extremely it's an extreme reduction of all the finances especially for whatever is the most important thing which according to the laws the laws that have been established so far the people that are disabled have a com financial compensation that is independent and now they are conditioned and they're going to be reduced 10 times, and they're going to save 90% of all the income that they have used for people that have disabilities. And so, as you can see, these are the services are really almost non-existent, and they don't have a philosophy to support or to be able to that to give uh, uh, public services or to improve the possibility of giving special services. So thank you very much. And excuse me. Other contributions? Yes, uh, John from Denmark. I just wanted to reflect on what uh, our good friend from Austria said regarding the, the postal automats. Or, uh, I saw the request from Steinbauer, which we have already uh, replied to, but I can just say that it's something we have been discussing, discussed now for four or five years. Incidentally, the, the machinery is from Austria. It's, as far as I know, it's made in Austria. And from the beginning, we, we talked with the, with, the, uh, with the Danish postal authorities because on the machine there's actually a real tactile physical keypad which could make it uh, much more possible for blind people to handle it than having these touchscreen uh, touchscreen uh, uh, ways to, to maneuver the machine and they say uh, they have been discussing it but apparently it's not uh, it's not possible for, for some reason uh, and uh, it's, it's simply not in any way possible for a, a blind person without a guide to go and pick up uh, a parcel uh, and since the uh, uh, as Total said, the entire postal system is being downgraded in Denmark. We only have five real post offices in the entire Denmark, and then we have a lot of uh, places you go to supermarkets or gasoline stations or whatever where you can pick up pack packages. But, uh, but all this means that there's, there's being installed more and more of these huge metal automats where you can go with your slip with a, a barcode and then you have to, um, uh, you have to uh, punch in a code, etc., etc., and all this is absolutely inaccessible to um, 
you blind people. So if you could put more pressure on your domestic producer, uh, maybe that could help because I think the the hardware is there. It's a, it's a, as always. It's a, a software technological issue, and since in and I, I believe that in general it's not much uh, easier or more uh, difficult or demanding than using uh, the ATM, the you know the money dispensing machine, uh, where you can put in a, a headphone uh, in the machine. It blanks the screen. And you can do everything from the keypad, or at least the, the basic things. So it is possible. Just a matter of getting these people to you show that they really are very keen on doing software programming. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. What, what you're tackling here is, and, and also the others, what you're tackling here is a very general problem with uh, touch-sensitive keypads and screens which we find with a lot, with a lot of devices of daily use now. And this is a matter which we are dealing with and try to deal with uh, in connection with the draft of the European Accessibility Act, which has been set up in December last year. Um, they haven't neglected to really um, include them in this EAA, and we're trying to change this but it is absolutely necessary that on national level all the organizations of blind and partially sighted people really make waves about that so that people know about that. Wherever you meet people, please let them know that they don't try to replace their old keypad that they had for terminals to pay or for the use of freezers and anything like that. Never should they replace these keypads with touch-sensitive screens, it is just terrible for us, and it would exclude us from any use of those devices. Any other contributions? Uh, this is Barbara from Spain. Please, um, Barbara, you have the floor. I would like to highlight uh, once again the Marrakesh Treaty. Um, I would like to say that Spain is more than one year that we are prepared to go to Geneva and deposit the instrument over there but since we are blocked because of the competence issue. But anyway, I would like to, to have some, not good news, but at least be, being positive here that maybe in September uh, this situation may be unlocked, and, and then we, we can try and, and start uh, ratifications all over, all over Europe. But um, since, it, since we don't know how long it will take, it is important, and that's what I want to highlight to everybody here, is that we cannot wait for the Court of Justice to say what it has to say to keep doing things at national level. In terms of that, we are all aware that publishers are pushing very hard and trying to convince governments that Marrakesh Treaty is not that big thing, that they need to change their national laws, blah, 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 blah. So there's a lot to do at national level, and I would like to insist on this to make sure that by the time the European Court, uh, just, uh, court of Justice uh, says what it has to say, and after the Commission publishes the instrument that uh, will allow us to start doing the process, uh, everything is almost done, so we don't waste uh, much more time. 
I would also like to highlight the fact that another petition will be presented to the European Parliament for, for, as I said before, to gain time in terms of as long as the European Commission says this is what we have to do, the European Parliament has its own position so we can go quicker and make sure that we have Marrakesh Treaty on board. So don't, don't hesitate to keep pushing, to keep fighting, and of course going ahead and, and keep in mind that the CRPD is the, the best instrument and the best argument we have in our hands and in our minds to make uh, Marrakesh a reality as soon as possible. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Any other contributions? W Polsce jesteśmy przed poważnymi zmianami ustawy o rehabilitacji i zatrudnieniu osób niepełnosprawnych. Rozstrzygnie się sprawa po wakacjach. Nie wiemy, czy więcej środków będzie przeznaczonych na wsparcie pracodawców zatrudniających osoby niepełnosprawne, w tym osoby niewidome, czy będą to środki na rehabilitację społeczną. Here is the contribution from Poland. So in our country we are just uh, before uh, important and big changes in the main law uh, for the rehabilitation and uh, employment uh, of all the people with disabilities. And uh, it will be... Um, solved probably in October. Uh, we will know uh, that if we will have more uh, resources, uh, financial resources for uh, to support the employees uh, or for the rehabilitation. So we are pushing our government. We are all the time talking about it with them. W związku z tym, że polityka rządu jest niepewna, ogromnym sukcesem Polskiego Związku Niewidomych jest to, że w lipcu tego roku po raz pierwszy w historii udało nam się powołać parlamentarny zespół do spraw osób niewidomych. And uh, we also have important success in the field of lobbying the issues connected to blind and partially sighted people in our country, uh, that in uh, July we uh, established for the first time in the history in our parliament uh, a special uh, group which will discuss our issues uh, separately. Uh, just uh, It's dedicated for the blind and partially sighted people, not for the all disabilities, not for the uh, social policy, but just, just for our issues. Członkami tego zespołu są parlamentarzyści, a także eksperci pracujący i działający na rzecz osób niewidomych w Polsce. Może jest to podpowiedź dla kolegi z Albanii. Może oni spróbowaliby również powołać taki zespół parlamentarny, który mógłby się sprawami osób niewidomych zająć. A jeśli nie, to proponuję koledze z Albanii, aby poszukać takiego posła, który zechciałby przyjąć ten problem, tę sprawę do załatwienia i spróbować wprowadzić w parlamencie poprawkę do tych źle przetłumaczonych dokumentów, czy znaczy zapisów z konwencji.
And our example may be uh, some uh, tip, uh, some good advice for the Albany, uh, uh, because uh, this uh, this group in our parliament can be a good example uh, to uh, establish something similar in your country, in Albany. Uh, to have better access to to parliament uh, to parliamentary members and uh, to discuss with them and uh, also to to change the the, the wrong uh, translations uh, and or maybe even to find just only one parliamentary member who will be your uh, advocate Problemy cichych samochodów w Polsce oczywiście również jest odczuwalny przez osoby niewidome i to nie tylko zagrożenia cichych samochodów, rowerzystów na jezdniach, ale również na chodnikach i parkingach, ponieważ u nas bardzo wielu rowerzystów niezgodnie z prawem jeździ również rowerami po chodnikach, a często osoby niewidome też padają ofiarą wypadków na, na parkingach. And we would like also add uh, that we have uh, the same problem uh, with uh, bikers uh, that uh, which are also riding to the um, pedestrian pathways. So the blind people are also uh, having many accidents. Uh, are, the discussions are very difficult with our with our ministries and government to to change the law about it. And but we hope that this group in Parliament will help us. Więcej udało nam się w Polsce zrobić, jeśli chodzi o podróżowanie, ponieważ przy ministerstwie transportu kolejowego powstał taki zespół który wypracował zasady podróżowania osób niepełnosprawnych z uwzględnieniem oczywiście potrzeb osób niewidomych i zespół ten pracuje już od kilku lat i w Polsce zaszły bardzo poważne, pozytywne zmiany, jeśli chodzi o podróżowanie, czyli nie tylko wyposażenie wagonów kolejowych, ale również infrastruktura kolejowa, a także asystenci, którzy pomagają przy prawda, kupowaniu biletów, przy docieraniu na, na, do odpowiednich pociągów i poruszania się po dworcach. Jest to bardzo pozytywne zjawisko. And we have many, we have many positive changes in the field of transportation, uh, public transportation, uh, uh, especially in the um, in trains, uh, we have a special group uh, which is an um, advisor for the Ministry of Transportation. So all the uh, construction works and uh, renovation and building the new tra uh, train station are consulted with us to design the best uh, possible uh, construction for uh, disabled people and also people with visual disabilities. And also we have these services of uh, personal assistance who helps to tr travel uh, safely and or buy the tickets on the uh, stations. I, uh, I do apologize if I interrupt at this point. Uh, we still have quite a 
few people who have uh, showed up to give uh, their contribution. Please, if thank I... Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for this contribution. If I uh, can ask people to really restrict to essential point of their uh, of the development in their country because otherwise we won't run sh we will sh run short on time um, so um, please I, I just have learned that our friend Jose Biara has arrived and we will shortly give him the floor but uh, let's see about the constitution and please if possible only one per country so this is Timo from Finland Yes. Uh, well, I have some good news from Finland. After 10 years struggle with the bureaucracy, our, uh, our country has now ratified the UN Convention. Oh. <laughs> and a bit more good news is that, uh, one good news is that uh, we have a quite a good uh, national law uh, concerning the equal rights of people Yes, and uh, it seems to be, it, it's following the principles of the UN Convention uh, when, when we are talking about the people with disabilities. And it seems that that national law uh, is, is a very good tool in our advocacy work. For example, we have, uh, we have managed to get uh, one Finnish bank uh, to, to produce the uh, essential information con concerning the bank bank uh, code and, and so on, on, on Braille. And the bank was reluctant to do that, but uh, after the authorities said that you have to pay 50,000 euros if you don't do that, so they did. <laughs> and uh, concerning the Marrakesh, uh, Marrakesh uh, Treaty, so our country is ready to ratify it, but we are waiting for what's happening outside, especially what's happening in EU. So we are more or less a stand still, but, but very positive for yeah. that. Thank you very much. Next one, please. Yes. What is it? Uh, apologies. We are dividing our presentation into parts, and we make it very brief. One part from our CEO and uh, one part again from me. We just wanted to inform you that uh, DBSV uh, has a stall and an exhibition at the International Fair for uh, consumer electronics in September. This means concretely that we have a stall together with uh, certain providers um, of technologies like washing machines, ho household appliances, entertainment electronics like Miele, Siemens and uh, Samsung. And uh, we also have organized or we will organize a symposium uh, and a panel dis discussion with uh, providers from electronic technical devices together with uh, national politicians but also together with assistive uh, device experts in the, in the development of assistive technology and we, will, we hope that we will strengthen also the requirement of accessibility within the industry. This was my part. Now I hand over. Okay, thank you. Um, and the next information is that um, we have something like accessibility uh, regulations in Germany since about 15 years and uh, last one, two years we um, were lobbying um, to get better regulations there. Um, 
Now we were successful since uh, some weeks. We have a new law. Um, and we were successful because we got it more linked with this CRPD. Uh, for instance, we have now the uh, reasonable accommodations uh, in the law. And um, we have better uh, definition of accessibility. We have um, now a governmental um, um, center for accessibility. And uh, we have... Um, are better uh, conditions to get um, IT accessibility um, so around about uh, job, um, uh, the jobs. But these are the, the good news. The bad news are um, these things, um, they deal with uh, the public sector. Uh, we were not successful uh, to get um, regulations for a uh, private sector. It's quite new, and in the next months we will share with you these informations um, um, yeah, across uh, Jessica, I think. Thank you very much. Next one. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Tomer. I am from Israel, representing the Center for the Blind, and thank you for having us here. I want to uh, inform the form about four, I want to highlight four issues. First, for the Marrakesh Treaty, uh, I was uh, personally um, involved in the employment of the treaty in Israel. We have implemented it into our internal law, and we are uh, uh, one of the first countries to ratify the, the, the treaty. And we hope uh, the EU will follow soon. Uh, we are uh, starting uh, to cooperate with uh, other countries to uh, to exchange books for braille and and uh, uh, recorded books, etc. Another uh, positive uh, development in Israel is that last month there was enacted a law that um, involves employment of people with disabilities and especially with significant disabilities, which is include, of course, blind and visually impaired at a quota of at least 5% in every public sector or private sector uh, entity that employs more than 100 uh, persons. And these are in the positive side. In the negative side, uh, the Ministry of um, uh, Welfare has decided to develop a, a general administration for disabilities instead of the separate service for the blind that we had and we think this is a very negative uh, development because uh, we think that the blind and visually impaired people has their special needs and they're not uh, fit into a general administration. And we urge the EBU to help us prevent this uh, act that is uh, going to uh, create soon this administration. And last point that I want to make is about uh, IT accessibility. In Israel, we have a regulation that is coming into force in two months that uh, involves accessibility of all public services, which is uh, defined as all service that is open to the public. So pu both public and private services are obliged to have their 
IT services, including internet and uh, smart smartphone applications, and etc., accessible. Um, and now we have a backlash from the industry that wants to uh, abolish this regulation because they think it's a uh, uh, too heavy burden, uh, and we we are fighting fighting this uh, phenomena, and we hope uh, that. Uh, we can uh, back up the existing regulation. Uh, the, the main problems that they are pointing to are archive documents. They say that they cannot make accessible thousands of archived documents. And time-based media, which is uh, uh, videos and other uh, moving um, uh, movies and other things that are on the internet uh, and we are willing to make compromises but we think we have to preserve the wide application of the regulation both to the public and private sector because we think uh, many many blind and visually impaired people have um, to use we are using the, or using the internet or uh, IT services uh, they do use it both in the private and in the public sector, and we hope that the Digital um, Information Act of Europe, which is uh, now debated, will go in this way. Uh, we are disappointed to know, to learn, that it is going to be limited to only public entities, because we think uh, private sector is gr growing. And if there is, there will be no accessible uh, sites of private sector entities, uh, blind and visually impaired people will be hurt. So thank you, and uh, carry on with the important mission that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, can I ask? Um, we, we are running short on time right now. Can I? Can I ask if there is a country who would give us? give its contribution who has not yet had the possibility, then we take it. But please, not uh, uh, no more contributions than one we had before. Thank you. Okay, thank you. This is Un Hagen Norway, from, thank you. from Norway. I, I'm going to be very concrete and very short. Uh, I would like to come back to what uh, Marcus said about digi digital mail, which is the new development. And in Norway, we have, the government has now launched a system that you can only uh, communicate with the public sector through digital, um, digital uh, letters. Uh, and that means that you can't call them, you can't send them an email, but you have to fill out a form, and the form is, of course, a PDF. And the response is uh, sent to you in your personal digital um, mailbox, which is really hard to to attend if you are blind or partially sighted. And when you eventually come into that digital mailbox, you find that all the letters are in PDF. So my question is, is there anything in the EU um, postal directive that we can use to pre prevent or to adjust uh, this development? Because uh, that means that I can no longer read my own mail uh, independently, and this is, uh, has certainly come to stay. So, and is there anything you can uh, do to uh, to um, uh, 
uh, raise awareness about this fact that uh, blind and partially sighted is a group that is outside its de development. Thank you. Uh, just to be clear about it, is it that the mails you're receiving are converted into a format you cannot open or anything like that? Did I get that right? Well, uh, the mailbox is very difficult to attend, and when you f uh, eventually come into that box, you find all the mails are in PDF. And I know that uh, there are systems that we can use maybe in the future to open PDF letters. Uh, but at uh, this stage, it, it is um, uh, too difficult to do it by yourself. You have to have um, okay. uh, visual help. Uh, I'm, I'm afraid we will have to take that with us and really deal with it uh, and so that you get an, a, a, a reasonable reply on that. But at this moment, I think we just have to take it with us. Is it all right, Un? Thank you. Any country left? Huh? Kana? Okay. Thank you very much so far. I am oh. Nenad Redenkovic. Uh, I uh, am a representative of a Union of the Blind of Serbia. I can say, as regarding Marrakesh Treaty, that our government is not still considering. Uh, that treaty, and we have no idea when uh, will be uh, in agenda uh, on our government. The biggest problem in Serbia, quite surely, is employment. Uh, it is uh, very difficult for all for all blind and uh, economic situations uh, in our country is very difficult also and uh, because um, that problem uh, is very big. As uh, regarding digital and electric uh, technical devices, I uh, can repeat all uh, what uh, already uh, said previous colleagues. Uh, if uh, device is more modern, uh, it is surely be that uh, 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 more, uh, less, less accessible for, for uh, blind. Uh, at the end, I can say that um, implementation of UNCRPD uh, is um, a very unsatisfied, but uh, as regarding uh, normative view in our uh, legislation, uh, that situation is much better. But Unfortunately, more important is uh, implementation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. So I think that uh, brings us to the end of the contributions of all the countries right here. It took us... Oh, just one. Thank you. Excuse me.
don't want to skip it. Volgam has forgotten the Czech Republic. Yeah. What a shame. No, no, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's not your sort of fault, it's my fault uh, to be the last, I believe. So first I'll start with Marrakesh Treaty, a uh, short overview. In my country it's quite funny because uh, our cultural ministry officials are very enthusiastic about the treaty. Politicians don't know what it means and uh, why cultural uh, ministry of culture officials are enthusiastic because our language is a sort of european small european language not very many people can speak czech and so people at the ministry imagine that through marrakesh treaty quite a lot of people will start learning czech because there will be uh, it will be possible to send books overseas and they are of course enthusiastic also because uh, czech people would start learning foreign languages through the exchange of materials. So as far as the officials are concerned, I would say that uh, Marrakesh Treaty is on its good path to being ratified because as far as I understand, uh, no uh, unions of uh, copyright holders are strongly against the against the Marrakesh Treaty, so maybe the ratification will come in a sort of reasonable, reasonable time because politicians will do what their officials will tell them to do. Now, as far as uh, transportation problems, we had a very funny transportation problem. You may have heard about small vehicles, quite dangerous, uh, noiseless vehicles called segways, and those segways are running all over our historical parts of the cities. And uh, we started a very, I would say, activistic campaign against those segways. And fortunately, officials from local authorities in those most uh, preserved historical parts of uh, cities were on our side and they were even fiercer than ourselves. And there are now, uh, there are now decrees uh, in force and effective that actually ban all those vehicles from those historical parts not to, uh, not to uh, injure not only blind people but also teenagers with headphones and, and other, uh, let's say, senior citizens and so on. So it was quite nice success. And uh, the third point is CRPD. We have a European champion for CRPD in our Czech Blind United, who is, a, uh, who is an accomplished lawyer and who is uh, closely monitoring whatever is being done. The country itself actually is, or the politicians who know about it, are more interested and influenced by our uh, by our National Disability Council, which is outside blindness movement. It basically incorporates physically disabled people and uh, mentally disabled people. And they are quite active in, in promoting CRPD and politicians are listening to them because they feel that uh, physically disabled electorate is more important than the blind. Uh, and my last point doesn't concern the topics we were talking about, but I again would like to ask the officials who actually may 
uh, sort of uh, influence what we uh, are doing here at the at the general assembly that uh, i would very much appreciate if we had a list of uh, present delegates all over the world not only the europeans whom we heard here now today but all the delegates list maybe it's already on the internet i haven't inspected that but uh, i would like to uh, to point out that the list would be very handy for preparing our reports when we come back home thank you thank you very much we'll take that with us and we'll pass it on to the wbu uh, organizers thank you very much so that brings us to the end of the exchange of uh, information it was quite intensive i must say and so we have another uh, time schedule that we're facing now. Uh, I will absolutely right now f pass the word, the floor, to uh, our friend Jose uh, um, Viara. Viara. Excuse me. Viara. And, um, um, and then we will have the coffee break afterwards, and then we will have to come back uh, in terms of uh, the internal communication strategy. That's what we'll have to do, so I invite you to meet us afterwards so that we at least can go through the very instructive paper that Mokran has uh, set up for us, and then we uh, can have a discussion on that before we then finish. So um, I apologize for the, having to change the schedule for this afternoon. Jose, you have the floor. All right. Okay. Good, good afternoon, everyone. Um, buenas tardes a todos. Good evening. I am going to speak in English because it's the language that everybody can understand. I think I'm going to speak English in order to make sure that we all understand um, each other. Um, let me first take this opportunity to thank uh, Mr. Angerman for uh, giving me the opportunity to share with you all some of uh, our reflections from the World Blind Union, our thoughts around um, what human rights mean and what we can do together. I'm not, uh, I promise I commit myself to uh, just be very brief and take just five minutes of your time, but in advance, um, thanks for giving me the, the chance to do so. Um, why I asked Mr. Angerman um, to, to give me this opportunity? Because um, I definitely believe that there are a lot of things to do around uh, human rights. I was listening carefully to each of your presentations, and most of them refer to different human rights issues. This is definitely nothing new, what I'm saying. But what I want to share with you is that we definitely need to work more closely and we have to be uh, much better connected. And when I mean connected, I mean connected between the WBU and all the regional members, including the national members in Europe. Because even though if we compare different regions, we might have different agendas. What is coming to all of us, all the WBU family, is that we need to make sure that our voice, the voice of visually impaired, is heard. And when I say is heard, not only at the international level, where 
we could say that we have advanced many of our rights, but at the same time, at the local, national, and regional level. And that's one of the commitments or one of my responsibility as human rights officer to make sure that we balanced our responsibility to work with all our national members. That's why some of you have, for example, last week received an email from me inviting to a bilateral meeting during this week in, this, in, in Orlando to plan the next Universal Periodic Review report. And at the same time, the other direction, a part of the cooperation to implement UN treaty bodies at the national level, is to make sure that the voice of the blind and partially sighted persons is heard in different scenarios, such as the UN, especially in the Agenda 2030 environment, the CRPD, the Universal Periodic Review, and many other options. However, to reach that goal, we need to be on the same page all together. What can we do from the WBU? It's basically offer our technical support and our, te and our technical cooperation. But what we need from you all is to make sure that we know what you are doing, that we know what your needs are, and that we know what and how we can cooperate with you. Um, as you know, I have recently joined the WBU. It was just since March this year. But some of the lessons that I have learned so far in these four months is that the WBU has to be along with the national members. We have to uh, institutionalize the human right perspective within the WBU furthermore, but within the regional organizations and especially with the national members. Um, 2030 Agenda is definitely an innovative tool, is definitely what is next. However, we cannot forget and we have to be very clear and we cannot miscommunicate that we are going to orientate all our efforts into the 2030 agenda. We will have to get into the 2030 agenda with one of our most important and successful goal, which is the CRPD, as our specific and our own human right tool. At the same time that I say that we have to work for the implementation of the 2030 agenda because it's a universal agenda and it's for all of us and it's not just about development and it's not just about money but it's about human rights and we have to do it from the framework of the CRPD I say at the same time that we need to make sure that all the reporting procedures consider what we need our demands if you read some of the recent CRPD alternative reports, the voice of visually impaired and blind people is not very well reflected. 
We need to engage more in those reporting. We need to make sure that when the UPR process is taking place in each of your countries, our voice is heard. I know that you know all these needs. I know that what I've just described is the context that you all share with me. But in order to improve what we have so far done, which is excellent and totally innovative, we have to work together. Our effort, our commitment, our responsibility, and specifically my role in the WBU is to support our national members in all these different tasks. So please, in, as we say in Spanish, please use my uh, modest knowledge, use my modest uh, cooperation, use all the resources that we can together find to make sure that our voice is heard. Our plan for the futures are basically trying to get more involved in the 2030 agenda, train our communities and our organizations in implementing, reporting, and following up the different measures recommended by 2030 agenda from the CRPD perspective. Also try to make sure that the coming reports of the CRPD, sorry, the CRPDs considered our voice, and finally, make sure that many other instruments, such as UPR and many other conventions, like the um, CEDAW, uh, CRC, and many others, have the opportunity to listen what we have to say about gender, women with disabilities, migrant, refugees. All those are things that we have to take care of, but the only way to do it is to work closely. Once again, the idea is to work at the international level representing the WBU, but I would say that it's even more important that we can do an implementing, reporting at the national level work, and that's what I'm here for, and please contact me, and for sure we can do a better job. Thank you very much once again for your time and for your attention. Thank you very much. We uh, may take time for one or two questions, if any. Who's that? I have a question. Okay, please. Go. Do we have the newest knowledge, actual knowledge about how many members of uh, WBU and uh, UBU, UBU? have already ratified the convention with this uh, protocol. Uh, is, is this a question for, for Jose? Uh, for uh, both of you, because uh, I ask about WBU and uh, EBU. Yeah, if, if I can answer it on behalf of WBU, so far we have 164 countries who ratified the convention. Um, and, um, and, and, and for, for Europe, um, to be honest, I don't have the exact number, but I would say that most of the European countries have recently, um, well, Finland has recently ratified the CRPD. Yeah, the most important thing is that the European Union as such 
yeah. is uh, joined the uh, UNCRPD, which is absolutely important for all the EU countries. So at least 28 European uh, EU countries are uh, linked to the UNCRPD. And uh, as far as the non-EU countries concerned, are concerned, uh, I cannot give you a specific number on that because it's a little bit difficult because they have a lot of um, countries uh, from the former USSR whom I really don't know who of, uh, which of these countries have already ratified the UNCRPD. I'm afraid uh, there are not so many. Okay, this brings us to the end of this part of the regional meeting. Again, I do apologize for not uh, having had in uh, my view the, uh, the, the extension of this meeting, so I hope you uh, are ready to come back after the coffee break for dealing with the question of internal communication. Thank you very much and enjoy your coffee break. We're about to get things underway here. So, I figure we'd get back on here. They're going to announce uh, election results, I believe. And then they're going to get back to the region meetings. The European Blind Union still has some things left on its agenda to cover. As does the... Uh North America, Caribbean region. I'm sure a number of the regional groups have more to get through their individual agendas. You know, if these groups normally met for a day, trying to squeeze a day's worth of business into a few hours, not an easy thing to do. And they're yeah. more likely to have a, a higher level of participation in terms of voting members at this meeting uh, than they would at any particular other meeting. You know, the North America Caribbean region is lucky in that it's a small enough number that they don't have to do a great deal of planning to get together. Well, let's see. We got oh, here we go. <laughs> no, they're just talking up there at the head table. Not, in the room, yeah. Not mm -hmm. announcing anything okay. as of yet. They're just chatting near a microphone, I think, by the sound of things. And again, we may have the... Right now, I would say that we have less than 20% of the members in the room still enjoying afternoon tea. And I'm pretty sure they don't do uh, muffins at afternoon tea. I doubt Larry. it. But I haven't heard what they do because we've always been so busy in the afternoon Yeah, that, that uh, we didn't concern ourselves with that. Our helpers, Dan and Leslie Spoon, have headed off to their homes here in Orlando. Um, so right all here of the we fetching take it up our, oh, our agenda to pursue it again. It's uh, item number six right now. Yes, please. Who, who asked for the floor? Is it? Oh, it's Arndt? Oh, yes, please. Arndt is, uh, I'm happy to, uh, to have our president of WBU right here, Arndt Holte. And uh, he, of course, is takes the floor whenever he likes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I don't know, I don't know I don't whether this mic yeah, is it's here, just but, try. But I think we announced that the result from the election would be declared. This is true, yes. 
This is true. Okay. Uh, Arndt will give us the result. I, I give you the microphone, right? I, I can use this one. Oh, okay. I can use it. it works out. Yeah. It works out. No problem. So, sorry. <laughs> because we, we, before the lunch, um, we, we said that we are going to declare the result from the election uh, by now. Uh, and we asked people to come here uh, after tea break. I don't think there are that many people here, but uh, for you uh, who are present, we are going to, to release the information. But first of all, I would like to say something about the resolutions. The resolutions uh, are or will be sent to the delegates uh, by email uh, today. Uh, and it will be read out tomorrow. Uh, the total text will be read out tomorrow, but we have also managed to send out the, e uh, the resolutions by email. Uh, so you can also uh, read the emails and find out the, find the text for the resolutions. But now uh, we are going to announce the result from the uh, election of the second vice. Well, only to let you know, Arndt, it's just the regional meeting of EBU right here. Yeah, but we asked people, Wolfgang, to, before yeah, we went to lunch. Only, yeah, yeah. So true. there might be some other here too? or Well, that, that's the only way we can do it. So, so whoever is here, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so if you uh, allow me, Wolfgang, I, I will give the floor to, um, to the returning officer, Terje and he will announce the result. Thank you, Arndt. Um, we are going to announce the results for the election for the second vice president of WBU. We had uh, three candidates in the end. We started out with five and ended up with three. We had Diane Bergeron from uh, Canada. We had Mohamed Esawi from Morocco. And we had Eli Macha from Tanzania. The total number of votes present was 215, same like yesterday. And the total number of eligible proxies were 85. So the total number of eligible votes would be 300. There were 260 votes cast. There were six spoiled ballots. They were spoiled because three of them had two voting cards inside the envelope, and three of them had voted for a candidate that had withdrawn. So the total number of eligible votes will then be 254. The votes for candidate number one, Diana Bergeron, was 79. The votes for Mohamed Ezawi was six. And the votes for Eli Macha was 169. So our decision is then to declare that Eli Macha is elected as the second vice president of WBU. Thank you very much. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. So unless there is anything to add by our president, no, I don't think so. We can resume our meeting. And... Uh,
As I said, it's item number six right now, which is to deal with EBU's internal communication strategy, especially how to overcome the language barrier. And uh, our executive director, Mokran Busaid, has uh, kindly prepared a paper which has been circulated among the EBU members. Um, and Mokran will take us through this paper and then we will have the possibility and of course we'll take the chance to uh, open up the discussion and exchange our thoughts and ideas about this. Mokran, you have the floor. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, dear friends, uh, first of all, uh, a big hello to all those I've not seen yet. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about the language barrier we're facing within EBU and, uh, and um, also on ways to overcome it. When putting together the agenda for this regional meeting, we felt it uh, could be useful to take advantage of your presence here in Orlando to uh, discuss and have this short working session or rather brainstorming session to discuss this issue. As you will have read from the minutes of the meeting of the EBU board held in last June, EBU is currently working on its uh, communication strategy, internal and external. And uh, this was, as I said, discussed at length at the June meeting. And what it appeared from the discussion is that um, members of the board identified the barrier languages, the uh, language barrier, as one of the major obstacles in the way of our members' participation in EBU's work. It is a fact, well, whilst the, um, the English is the working language of EBU, it remains that um, if you do not master or can work with that language in an efficient way, that, of course, uh, is really a stumbling block you know, in, in, in the way of uh, members' participation. This was recognized by the board, which uh, thought that more translations were needed, more documents, in particular in-depth documents, uh, must be translated. Now, if we, or how shall I put it, the, the cost of entrusting this to, um, to uh, professional translators would be prohibitive. So we really need to look for alternative, cheaper solutions. In the paper I sent, I submitted about three weeks ago, um, I'm setting out three examples 
uh, which I'd like to review here, of ways to overcome the language barrier. The first consists in setting up in each member organization a well-coordinated pool of translators who would be available and ready to support our members' international work. That, of course, is something uh, that we have never tried within EBU, uh, and certainly worth trying. And to raise the point up, it would be even better if um, in these pools, brown and partially started people, volunteers, who have the necessary skills, the necessary time, to also um, contribute to the work of our organizations. The second suggestion, which we heard at the board meeting in Berlin, was to uh, encourage the setting up of linguistic networks, or to encourage linguistic networking, whereby uh, a document translated into French, for example, by our Belgian member would be made available also, would be shared with uh, uh, other French-speaking colleagues in France or Luxembourg. And this would apply also, for example, to Germany, to the linguistic group um, for German. Uh, that, however, would, could not be applied to languages which are not spoken in more than one country. A third possibility would be, and you all know of it, in the automatic translation systems we know their limitations are not always reliable, so we should keep trying identifying systems that are satisfactory and reliable. But uh, even though we had such systems, it is still important to bear in mind that um, translations, which will be the result of this, uh, need to be controlled for, uh, for the sake of quality. This morning, at the first session, when, uh, when budget was discussed, um, there was a reference to organizations which are not financial have the possibility or can be granted relief in the form of contribution, fee relief in the form of contributions in kind, for example, translations. So here is another suggestion which we could also bear in mind. All this said, uh, it is of course important to, uh, to evaluate the existing situation. For the time being, EBU office ensures the translation of the newsletter, which is produced every two months in three languages, German, French, and Spanish. Um, and as Aunt Holter put it this morning, 
when he talked about fundraising, uh, making sure the funds that are raised are used in a rational and efficient way is also a form of fundraising. And I think uh, this is a very important thing to bear in mind. Um, but it so happens that, for example, when we have responses, EBU responses translated in other languages, we have no feedback at all about how they're used at the national level. So this is also something on which we need to work. Um, so now I, I would turn to you. Uh, we could open the discussion here, maybe trying to answer the following questions. Um, first of all, you could tell us if you are, if you experience language barrier, of course, I mean, if you are UK or Ireland, this may not be the case, uh, because, I mean, English is your language, no need for translations. Um, but otherwise, if you experience this problem, please tell us, and if so, have you taken any measure to overcome it? A second question you could answer is, uh, do you think you would be ready to implement the two or three suggestions made uh, regarding you know, how to overcome the, the, the language barrier? And three, um, do you have any other suggestions? So uh, thanks for your attention, and the, the, the floor is open. Thank you very much, Mokran, uh, for this uh, introduction and uh, reminding us of the contents of your paper. I take it that you all have read it. Um, indeed, we can use these questions to open up the discussion. So please, as we have experienced before, show up your hand and let us know if you and when you want to speak. No, so far no. No contribution. Well, the critical thing with it is that we have set up a network or we have set up a system of expert groups. We have set up a system of projects which have to base on expertise, which we, of course, uh, expect to have from the national organizations. And that, of course, uh, implies the readiness and the ability of the national organizations to step into these projects. And what we, of course, would like to ensure is that the national organizations have the possibility to cooperate with each, with each other. Now, as you all know, um, within the commissions, one of the problems was the language barrier because uh, people didn't feel equipped in, uh, uh, sufficiently equipped with the knowledge of English or the knowledge of French or the knowledge of the respective language of the other members of the commissions. And so, of course, as Mokran has pointed out, we have our working language within EBU, but we are trying to overcome the barrier which we know exists. So, 
For example, about the network, I, I'm trying to just resume this. What about uh, this network of volunteers? Do you see any possibility to take measures within your organization to find volunteers who will be ready to help with translations on a volunteer basis? Whereas um, translations not necessarily mean word-by-word -word translation, but in, some, in many cases it means summarizing a text so that uh, the people who are in charge to deal with a certain subject can make use of it. So let us share the thoughts about this. Can you... Oh, I've just <clears throat> been informed that you are... Uh, part of you are far back in the room. It would be nice to have you right here in front because um, we have just one microphone which we have to carry to you and uh, it would be very difficult to take it as far as uh, to the back of this room. So please uh, move, move a little bit forward to the front of this room. It's not that you have to sit uh, at the table which indicates your country. You have, can sit anywhere during this regional meeting. Please take the chance to do so. Okay, thank you. It's Marcus from Austria again taking the floor. Thank you, uh, Mr. President. Would you speak uh, up a little bit, Marcus? Yes, thank it's you. Marcus from Austria. Thank you, thank you for the opportunity. Um, and uh, I think the idea of finding volunteers is something we will look into in Austria. I, th I like that idea. Um, as for the language barrier, um, I would say um, we haven't experienced much of a hindrance when it comes to participating at European or international level because there we've got people, we probably have selected people who are quite... Who are um, quite comfortable with English, so there we don't have a problem. Where we do sometimes have a problem is getting the European information, the information we get from other countries or from the Paris office to our to our members, really down to the. To the, to the individual members. There we really do do a lot of translation work, explaining what we do, what the issues are. But, um, and there again, I think the, the, in, the, the idea of volunteers is, is, is good. We will, we will perhaps try and do that with a university. Uh, students who are, who are um, becoming translators might just want to help us out for a few hours. I think it could be done. Yeah, I like the idea. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, by the way, <clears throat> when we think of our newsletter, we have tried to find out how many people really read this newsletter because this uh, newsletter really contains a lot of information that are useful and helpful in order to deal with international work. Uh, we have found out, as far as we know, there are uh, unfortunately, just a few people who, for example, use the German version. 
just a few people who use the Spanish version of it, and so, uh, or, or the French version. I think what we need to do is much more advertisement inside our countries, at least for the respective languages which uh, our uh, newsletter offers. Any other contribution? No, there's also the, the idea of forming um, consortiums of lingual networks so that country using the same language can uh, cooperate together. The, there is, there is one, one area where uh, there is really a, a lack of... Uh, uh, a lack of, of information directly related to the difficulty there is in, uh, in translating um, uh, documents. Um, in most of our publications, when we advise, when we advertise EBU, uh, we explain that we have a network of 44 members, uh, and uh, the the and the, the expertise in matters relating to blindness and partial sight uh, lie with them. Um, I'm aware of a, uh, many publications that are produced by our members, but in the national language, and which would be extremely useful, helpful, if translated into English. Uh, so maybe you could look at this question under this angle. Uh, do you think trying to find alternatives to professional translations uh, to make this information, this resource, available is something we would, you would consider. When we think of the resolution that had been passed at the General Assembly in uh, urging the board to change the system of commissions and networks to project-orientated uh, groups and uh, networks and uh, well of course uh, this is connected with uh, things as have been described right now so <laughs> I, I uh, really wonder a little bit how uh, what organizations or delegates at this point uh, are thinking about this how to implement this system <laughs> No answer, okay. So in this case, uh, we just have to take it with us um, and leave it with you to think about it because it's up to the national members. It's not the EBU as such who can secure the system. It's up to the national members to deal with it. And uh, if we want to succeed in that, uh, we really have to, uh, to take it to the national members in order to get their feedback and uh, we will uh, look for a way to spread it out in the right uh, manner so that national members can deal with it. Because otherwise, we will not succeed in setting up this project-oriented system and expert, uh, expertise-based uh, system which has been required by the General Assembly. So... I close this item of the agenda in this case.
And we come to any other business. If there's any, please make your point now. Another question? Okay. Just, just a minute, yeah? We can, you get the microphone. Okay. Uh, my question is uh, how many uh, countries, how many uh, IB members uh, exactly uh, has these problems already with this uh, language and translation barriers? Is it a big problem and how many of our members? What I can say is when, when I look at the, the former commissions, um, I can say uh, almost all the countries that have not English as a native language have this problem in some way. Because you're looking out for experts, and you find expert in, experts in your country. There are people who really are knowledgeable, uh, <coughs> knowledgeable about um, the certain, for example, IT um, questions or about... Uh, Braille or about inclusive education and all these things, but they are and have not the knowledge they would need to express this in English. So they rely, they would rely on people help to assist them with putting their thoughts and ideas into English language. So I guess there's a lot of countries who have this problem. Um, so what about you? Do you experience this problem? Is it po Poland? That it's was Poland, Poland, yes. yes. Anna is uh, no, we, we don't have this, these problems in Poland. You don't? That's good to hear. <laughs> we we uh, are a national organization and we... No, we, we don't. Oui, en France, nous l'avons un petit peu. Et c'est surtout pour répercuter les informations à nos membres, à nous, qui sont souvent une population qui ne parle pas du tout l'anglais. Et nous n'avons pas, nous, le temps, dans une surcharge de travail journalière, n'a pas le temps de faire des traductions pour eux. Donc, that the network of uh, volunteers uh, would be something to put in place because volunteers are very enthusiastic at the beginning but after that uh, they lack uh, enthusiasm uh, so maybe I have two ideas uh, and I did not uh, compare to what you said earlier but maybe there is a, a translation for two levels. Maybe some documents do not need to be translated and we can keep those documents and we can try to understand them. And maybe there are some emergency documents that would need to be translated in an automatic system, even if it's not perfect, but at least it would allow us 
to know quickly about an information that is of utmost importance. And this way we can identify it as an emergency and this way we can pass it down. What I mean is that we don't need to translate everything all the time, but maybe a selection of messages and target the message that are the most important. I'm not sure. It's just an idea like this. Thank you. So that uh, still refers to our item number six. That's good. Any other contribution on that? Um, I have a question to Sweden. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. Here we go. Just my name is Audrey Ozenete. I come from Lithuanian Association of the Blind. Actually, translation is a very big problem. I, I really think that this problem exists everywhere. Because when we speak about people participating, blind and partially sighted people participating in the international work, well, first of all, we have to, to think about guides or interpreters, and that means money. Actually, we, we do not have such interpreters in our association, and official interpretation is very, very expensive. So I really like the idea, um, Marcos' idea. Of course, maybe we can go to the university or uh, where future interpreters are trained. Maybe as an apprenticeship, they could serve as our association. So if we do not have enough people able to speak English, I don't think future for, for them participating at least in the international work. It's very complicated. Thank you. Uh, I think it was something we were thinking of when we thought, when we, when we had the idea of uh, finding volunteers that might quite well be in cooperation with, with universities. Any other contribution? Yeah, I, I just had a question to, to Sweden, if possible. Uh, in your short report of, uh, uh, of a while ago, uh, you mentioned the production of a uh, of a an interesting survey uh, on uh, employers' attitude uh, towards the employment of blind and partially sighted people. Uh, oui. Oui. Um, do I have to repeat? Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so this is a question to uh, to our Swedish friends. A while ago, when you gave your short report, uh, you mentioned the production of a survey regarding employers' attitude towards the employment of blind and partially sighted people. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, I mean th this is certainly very interesting for you at the national level, but it may also be very useful for uh, other organizations uh, in neighboring countries or in Europe. Uh, so this is... The, I mean, would you have the means to translate this into English for wider circulation? Thank you. Yes, my name is Neven Milivojevic. I'm a general manager uh, and, uh, uh, from Sweden. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we could try to make, like, a short um, a summary of, of some of the results. So maybe just on one page we can try to do that in English and distribute within the, the EBU list. That's no problem. Any other contributions? 
We're dealing with expertise in many, many different languages, no. which is not available to other uh, to, to, to countries with different languages, which is, possible, which is uh, a pity. When I think of, for example, our, uh, the magazines we have in Germany, with, where many very expertised articles are published, um, if they could be translated, for example, into English or French or whatsoever, um, would be a very, very valuable exchange of knowledge and uh, in terms of surveys, uh, we find surveys that are mm, perf performed in different countries, which uh, then disappear in some of the drawers of some universities and never are published internationally, which is a pity. For example, at the moment we're dealing with the project of the usage of Braille, which is one of our priorities. And our Danish uh, organization has volunteered to do so, and, they are, and then when I uh, came back to Germany, I found out there is a there has been a study, a very extensive study about this subject in Germany and Austria, which has been published in one of our magazines. And uh, I sent it then to, to our friend John Halbrun and said, okay, make, maybe you can make use of it. And the, you know, this, this is what we mean when we say we need a, an extensive, an intensive, an intensive exchange of, uh, of knowledge. And this is uh, necessary to do via uh, the possibility of uh, translating things like that from one language into the other. And, uh, okay, I, I see at this moment we can only um, send this out to you <laughs> as an idea, and please think about it, and try, when you come back to your country, to talk about this in your organization, setting up a pool of volunteers making use of automatic languages uh, translation, not in terms of expertise papers, for example, but in terms of at least dealing with the email system we're using, and things like that. So please don't neglect this subject. It's so important because otherwise we will not succeed in what we really want to do. So once again, I call up the any other business item. If there is no contribution on that, it just leaves me to thank everybody who has been here, to uh, thank you for your, for your attention. I'd like to thank our assistants to, uh, for, their, for, their, for their support in dealing with all the technical stuff here, with the microphones and things. Thank you very much. And uh, just leaves me to close this meeting, wishing you a nice evening, everybody. And... Uh, the meeting will be resumed tomorrow morning with the opening of the ICEVI conference uh, together with WBU presidents and ICEVI president. Thank you very much and have a nice evening. <laughs>